0: My fellow Westorians, I'm Aziz, with me is Ashea, and this is Valar Riretis. And
1: with both of us is Davos Seaworth.
0: (laughs) That's right. You got to have some extra Davos action. It's the last Davos chapter of the book, and we're particular Davos lovers. So I got the hat, I got the doll. The doll, thanks to uh, Tommy Pappas, the man. Shout out to New Dad Podcast. But yes, as I was saying... (laughs) Valar Rereadus is a journey through the books for people who have made the journey before brought to you by people who have made the journey many times. George R. Martin has said before and we will say again, this series was designed to be reread and we're your tour guides on this journey. But even we doing this full-time can't catch everything. So if you're watching live, feel free to submit questions or comments and you can do so in advance by joining us on one of our social media platforms like Facebook, Flick, Discord, or Slack. You can find links to those in the description, whether you're watching the video or listening to the podcast. This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose. And I think a little fear i'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety embarrassment envy and ennui it's what you call the boredom okay that one was weird it's gonna be the feel everything movie of the summer disney and pixar's inside out 2 rated pg parental guidance suggested only in theaters june 14 get tickets now we took it all we brought them to our land an endless night ember hot and icy cold the rage of the earth we made this curse, carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did.
1: And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga,
0: Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Make sure you also check out the Isle of Faces. That's Joe Buckley's podcast. You can find his thoughts throughout this episode and almost every Valar us episode. Those thoughts are expanded on in his Scraps and Scrolls editions of his podcast, Isle of Faces. Also, check out Nina Friel on Tumblr. That's Good Queen Ally with one L, one word. Also, same goes for her. Her thoughts are scattered throughout this episode and most Valar us episodes. If you want to support the podcast, you can join us on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash history of Westeros. Find the pledge level that fits you best. Both in terms of your finances and the level you'd like to support us at, plus the benefits that we are offering, whatever fits you best, we will appreciate it. Today we have Davos Six. Edric gets on a boat because of the implication, aka the one where Lightfringer is Light a Fringer. Light Lightfringer. It's like I've been watching too much uh, Better Call Saul. It's Gus Fringer. Light mm-hmm. Fringer? No. The one where Lightbringer is a reading lamp.
1: John 8, the gang defends the wall, a.k.a. the one with Donald Noy versus Mag the Mighty.
0: Arya 12, the The one one with Sandor the Builder, a.k.a. Wolf Dreams of Cat.
1: Then we've got Tyrion 9, the gang reignites the rivalry, a.k.a. the one where Tyrion can't find witnesses.
0: Jamie 8, story time, the white book, a.k.a. Lord Commander Kingslayer takes charge. Some themes and patterns and overview to get us started. The wall itself is a major theme this time around. Davos tries to get Stannis to go there and to go there and succeeds. Tyrion is told he can get sent there in lieu of execution. Arya says to Sandor that they should go there. They don't, but then he helps a village build their own wall something he's good at because he's proverbially giant-sized. And hey, giants help build the Wall, too, or so we're told. Jamie's chapter is very focused on the White Book, and while that's got little to do with the Wall, the Kingsguard have many parallels to both the Night's Watch and the others. It's a place where duty is clear and permanent. Duty itself is a major theme today as well. Jamie's chapter fits that perfectly, and his prior chapter ended with him arguing with his father over exactly what his duty was and to who. John's duties near overwhelm him in both the rising scope and burden of his responsibilities and the pure physical toll, uh, even while he too is considered disloyal by those he's fighting for and himself for fighting against the free folk whom he's come to respect. With Re- Ygritte's death coming alongside this huge increase in responsibility, he's really feeling what Maester Eamon told him about duty being the death of love. And that brings us right back to Jaime, whose focus on duty will threaten death to his relationship with Cersei. Tyrion refuses to betray his father's secrets to Oberyn, even as he admits so much else and won't speak to his wife's complicity, even as everyone else condemns her using arguments he can't help but even agree with, all while he too is being condemned. Davos risks death doing what he thinks is an even greater duty than others he holds sacred, under the auspice of Melisandre telling Stannis that burning a child to save the world is his duty. Vows of service or forced service, all in black like the brothers, or a smuggler's sails, or all in white like the King's Guard or the snowy others. The King's Guard is supposed to be a noble institution, but what happens when they serve a monster like the Mad King or Joffrey? Well, we've seen exactly what happens in those cases. That's when they have some of their greatest symbolic resonance with the others. Kingsguard duty becomes a problem in such cases. When one is duty bound to evil, you can't really say duty is a good thing, can you? The others may not have such agency to begin with. For them, it may not be about choice at all. But for the living, for the Kingsguard, their oath of service to the king trumps their oath to protect the weak. Unless you're Jamie. Jamie's is trying to be a better Kingsguard, but that's not a part of himself he should change. That's one time when younger Jamie was very much in the right. And so the duty conundrums grow deeper. Which brings us to another theme here. We have criminals and traitors leading the way. Jamie's a kingslayer who was an extreme exception thanks to equally extreme family connections. Whatever you think of him, whether he deserves death or a second chance or something in between, you gotta admit, normally, he would not have been allowed to keep the Kingsguard job that he has now. And you gotta admit that the reason why he should be out of the Kingsguard is part of his reputation. Arya is a fugitive of sorts, and her traveling companion surely even more so, as well as the aforementioned uh, uh, criminal and traitor aspects, and this re- prevents them from receiving shelter. John is leading a group of men, many of whom are reformed criminals, and even more relevantly, he himself is seen as a traitor, not just by many of the free folk, but by many of his own brothers. Tyrion, of course, accused of regicide. We get prison and a trial, and we'll, he'll soon be a kinslayer, so we don't really need to explain how he fits this connection of. Crimes and traitors and all that And Davos himself A former smuggler But he's using his smuggling skills For good So Davos 6 Edric gets on a boat because of the implication A.K.A. the one where Lightbringer is a reading lamp By the light of that reading lamp Or should I say night lamp Davos uses a paper shield Ned's paper shield was insufficient to get Stannis on the throne And it certainly didn't save save Ned's life Or keep him out of prison but Davos has different results. It still probably won't get Stannis on the throne, but it's going to make his chances look very l- much legitimate again. And the paper shield probably did save Davos' life. And Stannis didn't imprison him either, like Cersei does to Ned, though Wyman Manderly will imprison Davos. We'll get there. Ned, Davos, Tyrion, spending time in jails is a requirement if you're Hand to the King and have a POV and a Song of Ice and Fire, so it would seem. So yeah, like I said at the beginning, this is the final Davos chapter of the book. And the first line is...
1: Their voices rose like cinders, swirling up into purple evening sky.
0: Maybe the purple's there to remind us of the purple wedding, but it's cool either way. The setting remains extremely creepy. One of the singers at the purple wedding called Stannis a dark lord. And this chapter doesn't exactly dispel that notion. It's framed around the burning of an innocent child. And of course, that's dark. But before that even we have this creepy, cool imagery, stuff like this.
1: The night fire burned against the gathering dark, a great, bright beast whose shifting orange light through shadows 20 feet tall across the yard. All along the walls of Dragonstone, the army of gargoyles and grotesques seemed to
0: stir and shift. And it adds much to the effect that we're seeing all this through Davos' POV, a man who has his opinions.
1: When he was a boy, the Septons had taught Davos to pray to the Crone for wisdom, to the Warrior for courage, to the Smith for strength. But it was the mother he prayed to now, to keep his sweet son Devin safe from the Red Woman's demon god.
0: Well, if the theories are true, Devin won't be burned, but he will sire a shadow or three. Even if that theory is amiss, though, being close to Melisandre as Davin is doesn't really seem likely to end well. I'd say. There's always a chance, though. You know, Melisandre isn't burning people and birthing shadows because she wants to. So maybe Devin will... You never know. First, though, this is a, a cherry on top for the power readers have just seen. Balon fell. Rob got skewered. Joffrey choked. Everything Melisandre said of the leeches is coming true. So this is a really good time for George to have R'hllor really on display to show, hey, maybe this whole thing is real. Second, it's intimidation. Davos is paying extra attention to this power because, well, he's about to go against it, meaning he's about to make a move that might get him caught, and this power may be the thing that outs him. But Davos, on the other hand, notices fewer people are chanting along with the the prayers than were before. So maybe things are turning a bit, and that gives him a little confidence. Davos expresses a trust in the night sky. Than the stars, and a distrust in Dragonstone. Quote.
1: But when he, ooh, I'm sorry. But when he lowered his gaze from the sky to the castle ramparts, he was not so certain. The wings of the stone dragons cast great black shadows in the light from the night fire. He tried to tell himself that they were no more than carvings, cold and lifeless. This was their place once a place of dragons and dragon lords, the seat of House Targaryen. The Targaryens were the blood of old Valyria.
0: They are just in the wrong place in terms of politics and winning the realm. It's just the wrong place, period. <laughs> when Davos hears Stannis and Melisandre approach, they're arguing. Again, Stannis does not want to burn Edric Storm. Now, of course, this is when he's made his way up into the near the Painted Table. He knows the conditions have been met, and so does Stannis. The three kings have died, and Mel says, it's time to do what you promised. Stannis is not the kind of man to easily break his word, so he does what people do, and they're a bit desperate to win a debate, and they're losing. He questions the source. <laughs> it doesn't work either. Recall that we referred to the sword Widow's Wail and that Cersei would be the one wailing, and that is what Melisandre calls it here directly. Quote,
1: Three is three, came Melisandre's answer. I swear to you, your grace, I saw him die and heard his mother's wail.
0: Stannis goes from thinking he has no choice but to execute Edric to thinking he has no choice but to execute Davos to thinking he has no choice but to go north. It's the right decision, I think, certainly better than the first two options. It reinforces the shadow on the wall nature of all this by by miles too. Stannis is a hard man who doesn't change his mind easily, but his decisions are almost always rooted in principles. Principles of duty and justice and law But even those very solid concepts appear to be fleeting and there's always things like misunderstandings. Yeah, you can get things wrong, right? It's hard to be a person who does what's right when you don't know what right is. Compare the setting here and what's hanging over it. Devon and Edric and the fires and shadows, then Stannis sails north. Talk about a thematic location switch. Going from fire to ice, from the volcanic home of the first Valyrian castle in Westeros and the Targaryen dynasty, birthplace of many dozens of dragons, to the wall in a land of ice and snow and the others. Quite an ethical switch as well while we're at it, defending the realm instead of burning a child. It's hard to reverse course more thoroughly than that, though he may yet reverse course back to that later. For now, it looks really good. Truly, though, to maintain the surprise of Stannis' attack on the wall, the actual decision to go north happens off page. The chapter ends with this line.
1: He smoothed the letter flat upon his knee, and began to read by the light of the magic sword.
0: We have to assume that the letter moved at least one of Stannis or Melisandre, if not both. I really doubt Melisandre would argue against going north, though. The TV show portrayed it that way, and as her being adamant that, yes, we do need to go north. And that's kind of how I figure the book version roughly would go as well. We don't see it, but it's got to be something along those lines. She's someone clearly on the lookout for the fulfillment of her expectations, and this. Letter with these troubles beyond the wall. That's exactly what they are. Even though they only mention wildlings, it's still troubling, which is what Davis called it in his previous chapter. And that's an understatement. But before the chapter ends, scene, before this point even happens, let's back up a little because I want to point out another wonderful piece of imagery that comes just before it. Recall that Danny's dragons were once called a flaming sword above the world, which makes people think of Lightbringer. And now Stannis lifts his sword Lightbringer above the painted table. During this scene, he's projecting the same image. And before that even, Davos himself casts a sword over it, but not one of fire, one of shadow, which is the other pillar of Valor. Hmm. Quote.
1: When Davos left the window, his shadow went before him, tall and thin, and fell across the painted table like a sword.
0: Well, we don't see exactly where the shadow falls, but Archmaester Rennie suggests this is a symbol of Davos' intent to defend or to guide Stannis towards that. A sword placed at the wall to stop the threat of the others. I like that. Davos has great influence over Stannis, there's no doubt, but he's an instrument of his king still, meaning that Stannis is still the one in charge. And Stannis in turn, at least according to Melisandre, is an agent of the Lord of Light Well, whether he truly is or not, I kind of doubt it, but he is acting the part and believes that he's supposed to, despite his level of doubt as well. Stannis has just snapped back at Davos that he doesn't need to learn the duties of a king from an onion smuggler. As they're arguing and Davos is making his point, Stannis is frustrated at the betrayal, but notice he doesn't say Davos is wrong, because he's not. A king's duty is indeed to protect the realm. As Joe Buckley says, he succeeds on a moral level with this successful heist, but we also see he has done well politically, as those men he talked about recruiting last time out absolutely come through in crunch time. It's pretty damn rare for any plan to go off without a hitch in literature, let alone a song of ice and fire, but it's really neat to have people buying in to something so surely because it, it, it shows what a great leader Davos is, that he's chosen people correctly, and that He's spelled it out to them well. He's leveled with them. He's honest with them about both what they're up to and the risks. Now compare it to the other famous attempted heist that's coming in the next book. Arianne, Martel and Marcella. That one didn't go so well, supposedly because someone told. But also, Arianne is no smuggler and has no practice with such things. But it's neat to see that even R'hllor's fire doesn't tell on Davos. Davos is particularly effective here in part because it's not unlike what he's best at, right? Smuggling, this is probably his greatest skill other than his incredible moral compass, which, hey, that's a sailing metaphor, compass, right? Mm. Instead of cargo, they're smuggling a person. It's not that different. He also gets the right hunch about how Melisandre's flame gazing tends to work. He really nails this, quote.
1: Maester Cresson tried to kill her and she knew it once. From her flames, I'd guess. It seems to me that she is very quick to sense any threat to her own person, but surely she cannot see everything. If we ignore her, perhaps we might escape her notice.
0: Indeed, let's back that up by jumping to Melisandre's own POV and checking out that, well, what Davos says is pretty right on. She does look for threats to her own person right away. Quote,
1: Melisandre paid the naked steel no mind. If the wildling had meant her harm, she would have seen it in her flames. Danger to her own person was the first thing she had learned to see back when she was still half a child, a slave girl bound for life to the Great Red Temple. It was still the first thing she looked for whenever she gazed into a fire.
0: And from there, she looks in specific places. The visions aren't random. It's this is how Mel sees the threat from Crescent and the deaths of three kings. She kind of has an idea what she's looking for. It's a similar concept we brought up with Bran. Bran, Bloodraven, people like that. They can't see everything. They have to at least have an idea where to look first. Like a Google search. You have to type something in the search bar. Google doesn't, can't read your mind. The idea of Edric being smuggled out never occurred to her in any fashion. And thus, she never looked for it, right? If she had, she probably would have seen it. If she was like, is anyone going to try to steal away with Edric? Is something else going to happen to him? She probably would have seen that, but she just had never occurred to her. And yeah, that makes sense. I don't see why it would have. It's a a pretty random thing that happened. uh, Unexpected, not random, but very unexpected thing that ended up happening from her point of view. I find the writing of Edric here to be particularly excellent and sad. Edric is very much the picture of a boy trying to be brave, and there's as much boy as there is brave. And he's just so very likable. I believe we've said before that he seems to have the best qualities of Stannis and Robert and Renly. But there's also little moments like this. I hated sums when I was your age cuz
1: I don't mind them so much. I like history best though. It's full of tales.
0: Right? Like just how George knows what he's doing, making us like Edric a little more there, saying we like his he likes history. He makes him just a little more like us. <laughs> so Edric goes off with a few protectors and more on them in a minute. We've got a uh, we, we took down what's what happened to them and where they're at now. So in case people were wondering, because a lot of you were wondering where they're at now. The question worth pondering is what would have become of Edric Storm if not for the abandonment of the five-year gap? Is it different from the current plan? And what is the current plan? That's a trick here. It's entirely possible George is just like done with Edric Storm. He's off page. He, can, he doesn't need to come back. There's Gendry. There's other bastards in Robert's name who are provably so that look like him. But... That's also a reason why he could come back. I mean, George hasn't forgotten about him. That's certainly not what I mean. The appendices haven't either. It's somewhat hard to imagine how Edric could come back into the story, given his age. But George has a better imagination than all of us, so he may have come up with something. But yeah, maybe Edric doesn't want to come back because he's in Lease right now, famous for his pleasure houses. What a place to come of age when you're like handsome. <laughs> like a young teenager who's handsome. That's I can see why he'd be like, nah, I'm going to stay here. We wonder too, a good question that Joe Buckley raises, why didn't Davos get a POV at the Wall? We next see him at the Sisters. He's gone all the way to the Wall, East Watch, and then come all the way back down to the Three Sisters. While you know, going trying to go to White Harbor, really, and that's because Saldaeron quits Stannis's uh, cause. His Dragonstone arc is tied off in a neat bow here. I guess maybe that's part of it. It would have been it would have been cool to see that, but mm, it's a nice what if Davos keeps reaching for his finger bones and finding nothing. He still has that habit, and Joe says he he really likes the inclusion because he has to make his own luck and live with the consequences. And Joe notices too that. In the future, he's not going to continue to reach his hand for his finger bones. He's gotten used to their lack, which is also symbolic of him relying perhaps on luck and more on good decisions and just taking what comes. Nina also has a take on the finger bones. The finger bones represented Stannis's clear absolute justice. He sentenced Davos for the crime of smuggling, even as he rewarded him with knighthood and then later promotions. So long as Davos had that pouch at his neck, he could be reminded in a very physical way that Stannis was just. But now, just as he's lost his finger bones, Stannis is willing, proving that he's willing. He doesn't actually make it because Davos removes the choice, but Stannis is willing to do it. Make no mistake, he was going to kill Edric. And now, can Davos say that Stannis is a truly just man, having, to, having been willing to do that? Well, maybe not. And that is perhaps why the missing finger bones are such a big symbolic piece in that light. Joe calls this one of the bigger deviations of any single plot thread in the series, meaning the switch from Stannis' position, both morally and ethically and strategically. Stannis was a huge presence in the War of the Five Kings during Clash of Kings. He is a brother to the former king. Even in Game of Thrones, we often talked about just how much his presence was felt by Ned even though he was never there at king's landing yet he gives all this up to go north a place he's never been that we know of a broken land in imminent danger no guarantee of getting out of it but he goes because it's the right thing to do not because of melisandra and but because of davos really melisandra had she gotten that letter she probably well i don't know what she would have done she may have said a similar thing say yeah you should go north but she's not the impetus for this this is she added her voice, maybe. But Davos is the one who did this. It's his conviction in honesty and loyalty that saw this through. Okay, so here's the where are they now bit. Davos, there's the people here. We have our Roland Storm. And he's the only one that stays behind. Clearly, Stannis is okay with him. There's no hard feelings, apparently. Because Roland Storm is the one named as Castellan in charge of the garrison when Stannis departs for the Wall. He's the one who refuses Loris's single combat challenge when Loras brings an invasion force. Now, we are told that Loras then storms the walls when the single combat is rejected and Loras is badly hurt and the castle is taken. We don't know what happened to Roland in that taking of the castle. Although, according to the appendix, he's still alive in A Dance with Dragons. So, yeah, because the storming would have happened near the end of Feast. So the fact that he's still in the next appendix means he probably survived, but it could just be and they forgot about him. I'm not sure. The other names are Andrew Estermont, Gerald Gower, Lewis the Fishwife, Tristan of Tally Hill, and Omer Blackberry. Well, no worries for any of them because they all go with Edric to lease, and according to the Dance with Dragons appendix, they're still there alive with him, possibly enjoying the pleasure houses as well. Anyway, so there was no no pushback really for them they managed to come out of it unscathed for now i find it interesting that melisandre dismisses axel florence's ability to see visions in the flame because well he's only seeing what he wants to believe and well melisandre's maybe actually seeing things but she's kind of only seeing what she wants to believe too she's not a fraud but she's still very biased in her interpretations so it's it's kind of a the tongue-in-cheek joke there, or at least a minor tragedy. Take it as you will. It's meant to be Melisandre being a little bit of a hypocrite. Pylos' willingness, too. He's another one. We got. We can't forget about him as, par, as far as helping Edric get away. And Nina suggests that he's a little similar to Maester Noren during the Dance of the Dragons. Maester Norrin is the one who, when he got Rhaenyra's letter, ordering him, well, the Lord, Lord Mooton, received the order. The maester, of course, just opened the letter. The order was to kill Nettles, who was Daemon Targaryen's lover. And N- Norton showed the letter to Daemon, rather than showing the letter to his lord first. Daemon called him a bad maester, but a good man. And Lord Mooton, similarly. He refused to treat him as a, as a traitor afterwards. So Very similar circumstances, letting the young, innocent person go. Nettles Nettles is innocent. There's also comparisons to be made here to Ned as hand uh, to Robert. What made Ned resign from being Ned's hand was his refusal to agree to the assassination of Daenerys, right? On the grounds that Danny was an innocent child, despite her royal blood. Same deal here, right? Davos refusing to agree to murder an innocent child despite his royal blood. But he's actually more able to act. I made a tweet about this and I said this is nothing against Ned. And it's similar. Again, it's, Ned wasn't able to do much more than quit. That's really kind of all the only option he had. Maybe you could argue he could try to tank the assassination attempt, but I'm not sure how he would, could do that. Davos has had more agency here, which is a little unusual, a little strange to think about. Davos having more agency than Ned Stark. But he did, and he took it. He, used, did, he took what was available to him and it's a good example of why Davos is so beloved. You can't blame Ned for not doing more. I don't know that Ned could have done more to save Daenerys, but you can look at it as, if you're going to kill a child, I'm not going to help. Whereas Davos said, if you're going to kill a child, I'm going to stop you.
1: To be fair, Davos also has a little bit more of a cleverness, sneakiness to him.
0: Oh, absolutely. Good point. Yeah, He
1: has more ability to do that sort of thing.
0: I, I totally agree. Davos thinks that way. It's more like in line with his skill set. It's more how he's Whereas it obviously
1: up. Ned took John in, which he was family, but he didn't want him to be killed. Yeah,
0: John and is And that a, was easy a, for
1: him to do. He didn't have to hide a bunch of... He didn't have to be particularly sneaky.
0: It's a. It's a probably a better example actually comparing to John. It's just that Davos, that one was... There was no assassination plot against no, no. John. It's just more of a threat against him. So that's, all right, that's, that's a great, that's a good other comparison to make here. So again, yeah, I'm definitely not saying anything bad about Ned. It's just a difference in similar circumstances where different options were available. It goes to show that there aren't a lot of characters in this series who really stick up for the children first and foremost, and even the ones who can, like Ned, sometimes don't have the ability. Even though he's handed a king, there's limited options even for him. Edric's last words to Davos, this is a great catch by Nina here. May the father judge you justly, which is fitting considering Davos thinks he could get executed and well, he's worried about how he's going to be judged. Stannis's and Melisandre's and the judgment of the gods. There's all sorts of judgments he's worried about. I too wonder as far as thinking about Edric and what could come later, how he's going to see this and how he's going to judge Davos. I assume that he will See it correctly But there's a chance he'll Believe that Davos acted wrongly He may not still see the danger He may not believe that he was going to be burned then if Stan- But if Stannis burns Shireen Who Edric was friends with Then I think Edric will Have to will Very willingly agree with Davos be Like wow Davos saved my life And he will probably also have a different view Of Stannis going forward And it probably won't be just that he's not a just man. It'll probably be a lot worse words used than that. Stan is proving something else about himself that he is willing to, as always, look past the surface and not judge people based on traits that that are not relevant. People so often judge Tyrion on his appearance when his appearance is irrelevant, such as uh, judging him as a military commander. Tyrion was a clever military commander as well as brave. He surprised a lot of people, but people still kind of look down on him because of, they just can't, it's hard for them to imagine that he's that that man could have military skills. Stannis, however, says, yeah, well, Tyrion's a dangerous man. When he hears that he may have been the one to poison Joffrey, he's like, yeah, well, I, I know to worry about that guy. He proved it on the Blackwater. So it's pretty straightforward. This is another theme of kingship. Davos talking about a king protects his people or he's no king at all. Check out what Daenerys says to Jorah before she sacks Astapor.
1: I was alone for a long time, Jorah. All alone, but for my brother. I was such a small, scared thing. Viserys should have protected me, but instead he hurt me and scared me worse. He shouldn't have done that. He wasn't just my brother. He was my king. Why do the gods make kings and queens? If not to protect the ones who can't protect themselves.
0: Some kings make themselves. Robert did.
1: He was no true king, Danny said scornfully. He did no justice. Justice. That's what kings are for.
0: Well said, Danny. Yeah, that's true. Gotta agree. The end of this chapter perfectly encapsulates the Edric Storm conflict. The fundamental flaw of the Edric Storm sacrifice is that Stannis is sacrificing another to achieve a supernatural end. What Daenerys showed in hashing her dragons. Though she may not have fully understood what she was doing, she certainly had the willingness to go in the flames, sacrificing herself. That's true sacrifice. It's not a sacrifice, at least certainly not as much of one, if you sacrifice someone else. But sacrificing yourself, that's proving that you are truly willing to believe in your cause. Davos is the one who really proved it here. Stannis put his life on the line to take the throne, but Davos is putting his life on the line, sticking his neck out, so to speak, by saving Edric Storm and sacrificing himself potentially to do what he thinks is right. Now, of course, as it turns out, Stannis happens to have agreed or at least come around on that. So good for all of us. We get more Davos chapters. Matt Reese says proximity of the target needs to be remembered. Ned wasn't close to Danny to really help her while Davos and Edric are on the same island. Yeah, absolutely. That's 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 like I said, the only thing Ned maybe could have done was maybe sabotage the assassination efforts. And I don't know that that was even possible. Of course, as it turns out, the assassination efforts were sabotaged already. That was perhaps part of the point. But Ned couldn't have known that. Neither could Robert. Shannon 0893. Uh, asks, who do you think is more likely to pick Edric up and bring him back to Westeros if he does return? Well, there's always the chance that it would be uh, Justin Massey who went over to get Sellsorge for Stannis. Now, I don't think he's going to Lys, and Lys is kind of out of the way compared to a lot of the other Free Cities, but that's possible. It's also possible Edric moves on from Lys and meets him somewhere. Other than that, there's a chance Daenerys, I mean, Daenerys is going to be going through all the at least some of the, not all of, some of the Free Cities on her way to Westeros certainly think Volantis and Pentos are, are on the menu. I don't know if Lys will be there or not though. But if it is, that's an opportunity. Other than that, I there's not many chances cuz the Baronborn, I don't see that happening. I don't think there's any real connection there or any reason for that to happen. Do you I can't think, think he would that.
1: ever just come back on his own.
0: Yeah, he could just come back on his own. I think if he did, he would want to have some sort of backing, you know. Yeah. He would want to be in communication with people. I kind of doubt he would just show up, but I'm not sure. You you wonder if I I certainly wonder if the some of the stuff happening with Fagon and the Golden Company before the you know maybe could have been involving him could have involved him.
1: He's he's already in the, in the company.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: he's just been there with them.
0: <laughs> he's hiding amongst the Golden Company. That's what we'll find out. Robert Gary says it's a lesson Davos learned from being a father himself, taking his own sons into war and being burnt by wildfire, and won't let Edric be burnt at all. Yeah, good point. He's experienced this. Far too personally, I think he would not want Edric to be burned, even if he hadn't seen his kids burn, because we don't need to see people burned to know it's awful. But the fact that he has seen it, I think that is really important in terms of driving him and saying, look, I've seen this and I do not want to see it again. And does No one deserves this. So that's a great point by Robert Carey there. Interesting that Davos reports it as Joffrey choking to death on his food, though he acknowledges the poison possibility. Tyrion's already being named the Poisoner. People, the rumors are already out there that Tyrion did it, even though we haven't had the trial yet. The trial hasn't started yet. That's a couple chapters from now, which shows what Tyrion is up against. (laughs) This does too, this quote.
1: Weddings have become more perilous than battles, it would seem.
0: Yeah, it's true. I mean, Tyrion's up against a lot. And so are uh, these these epic planners like uh, Littlefinger and Olenna are are really going at it. Doesn't leave much room for regular folk. Makes them seem like battles. A perfect example of a minor riddle answered long after the question was Stannis reacting to Joff's death with the anecdote of him cutting open the cat to get the kittens and Robert hitting him. Remember that? We, we brought that up. But this is when that is actually all tied together. It was just something Joffrey did with cats is all we knew before this. It's only because of, you know, because it was a reread that we knew that in advance. Here's another quote that stuck out to me. Creepy supernatural lines. So I wanted to draw your attention to it.
1: They walked quickly across a shadowed yard and down some steps, under the stone tail of a frozen dragon.
0: Hmm, yeah, that's cool. (laughs) Stone tail under a frozen dragon, which is kind of where they're about to head north. It's going to be a lot more like that at the wall. A significant number you pointed out or agreed with the idea that Stannis was relieved, that Davos relieved Stannis of Edric, even though he pretty quickly just became unrelieved when he realized now, well, I don't have to burn da- Stannis, I don't have to burn Edric, but now I have to execute Davos for treason? So, it's, <laughs> it's a little of both. Lots of Edric fans on Facebook. Chris Corey says maybe he can be the next Storm King, Edric Storm King. Hmm. It may not be in the cards, but I sort of do like the sound of it. It's the final Davos chapter until Dance of Dragons, as we've said, but there's still a lot more Team Stannis in this book, of course. In fact, the end of the book is dominated by the wall narrative. Sam has two more coming, and John has five, one of which is next. Let's go there now. John 8, The Gang Defends the Wall, a.k.a. the one with Donald Noy versus Mag the Mighty. I love looking at some good old chapter sequencing. How good is placing the promise of Stan is protecting the wall and the world being kingly next to a chapter of a young man who is definitely not a king, right? John's not a king. Of course not. <laughs> The opening line of the quote also has nothing to do with kings.
1: He dreamt he was back in Winterfell, limping past the stone kings on their thrones.
0: This thing, scene is in part a nod to Rob's death, him feeling echoes of it through the dreamscape, the dire wolf scape, perhaps. There's a feast and there's drums. I mean, he's dreaming of that there's drums in this dream. That's very, very much a tie. And of course, a bloody wolf. Recall, and it was a feast where we. John has his very first chapter ever, Game of Thrones, where he decides he wants to join the Night's Watch, specifically because it was physically pointed out to him he wasn't part of his family, given the seating plan foisted upon him by Catelyn Stark that no one else argued against. This is all the more meaningful, as he is very likely, by Rob's will, at this point, already king in the north, let alone, you know, his Targaryen heritage. However, in the dream, he feels as he often does when it comes to the crypts rejected. The opposite of you know being named an heir to this house. He's very often thinks about how he's not a Stark. His dreams tell him this. And that trick is the same as it always has been. George is telling the reader that, yeah, you're not a Stark. You're a snow. But behind that is that he's not a Stark because he's a Targaryen. Hmm. But really, don't lose sight of this. He's got a Stark Parent, no matter what theory you favor, unless it's a pretty wild theory, I suppose. <laughs> Either Liana or Ned, or maybe Brandon. It's not Bran, but Brandon, Ned's older brother, are the most remote possibilities, and I'm not really a fan of any of the ones that aren't Liana. It's interesting to compare and contrast John's dream to Jamie's dream back in Jamie's six, which is, you know, his below Casterly Rock dream. Both John and Jamie dream that they're deep beneath their ancestral homes, which they both can't inherit because of they've joined this order. Yet, despite that, they're both offered it, John by Stannis and Jamie from Tywin. And they both reject it, even though that they have this feeling of not belonging that they would like to address and solve. Both settings are fundamentally different, though, from the real deal. There's something off about both the dreams. Jamie thinks that, wait, there's no pools under the rock. What's going on here? And John hears drums in the Winterfell Crypt. I mean, these are not part of the normal setting. John is hearing the Red Wedding. And Jamie, well, we're not really sure about those pools. Maybe it's the baths that he was was in Harrenhal with. That's a topic for some other time. The point is, it's not something that's in Casterly Rock. They're both surrounded by the figures of dynamic or dynastic ancestors. John by Stone Kings and Winterfell's Crypt. Jamie with the, the voices of all the Lannisters since Lann the Clever. Jamie asks Dream Cersei why Tywin had brought them there. Dream Cersei replies that this is your place, your darkness, and then abandons him. John thinks that the Stone Kings are telling him that there is no place for you here. And himself thinks that I am no Stark and this is not my place. While Jamie dreams of himself as having two good hands in his dream, John is still disabled in his dream walking on a crutch. So that's there's some a lot of things they have in common and a few things that are a bit the opposite. Really good list of parallels and inversions there uh, provided to us by Nina. That's really good. John also is calling out for the male members of his family during the stream. All aside from Rob, interestingly enough, but he calls out for Ned twice and well, Joe Buckley suggests this is because it's a guilt dream. There's a lot of guilt in it. When Igrit pops up, that reinforces the notion John perceives himself as weak and injured by dreaming his crutch into this fake reality. But more to the point, he's asking his father for forgiveness. But for what? What's he asking his father for forgiveness for? He doesn't say, is it forgiveness for Igrit's death or for falling in love with her in the first place, for breaking his vows? Well, there's a lot of things he doesn't really need forgiveness for that he's asking for forgiveness for, and well, he did just burn Grit's corpse, so obviously he's haunted and sad and, and stressed out like crazy. In the dream, he's cold even because the blank uh, even beneath the blankets, perhaps a sign of his coming undeath. He feels colder without ghost presence as well, which is. Well, there's some just general, of course, your warm wolf is, is handy for his body heat, but there's more to it. I think his, it's a sign of being cut off from the werewolf net, and that's a real feeling of emptiness. Recall that he and Ghost are not reunited until his finer, final chapter of this book. There's also a bit of irony in John thinking, alive or dead, we'll rest. Not only is there no rest for corpses turned to whites by the others, but John himself is going to be brought back to life in the Winds of Winter, most likely, and he will not have time to rest. What's happening in this chapter is perhaps a sign of what's to come for John as well. Not just dying, but ha- having unbelievable responsibilities and foisted upon him that no one else can handle, that he's clearly the best man to handle, even though he needs help, needs lots of help. Again, we get the interruption trick used here. John is pondering deep supernatural issues like the Horn of Winter and these crypt dreams when a warhorn blows and he's brought back to the present danger of things. Usually, there's an interruption by a person, but here it's a horn. Which, hey, yeah, the horn's blown by a person, so eh. As the army is arrayed before him, Let's be mindful of perspective. This time, I mean physical physical perspective as much as anything else. Of course, I've gone on and on about perspective, about putting yourself in someone's shoes, trying to feel what they feel, experience what they experience. This, I'm just talking about pure awe from standing atop a 700-foot wall and looking at a 100,000-person army that features mammoths and giants and other things John's never seen. I mean, even John hasn't seen these things, even though he was with the wildling army when he saw the Free Folk from Ghost perspective, and that was from above too, it wasn't this high up and they weren't as gathered as close together. They weren't in battle array. And yeah. So from this height, it must be completely unreal. And for characters other than John, it would be even more so because they haven't seen any of this or hardly any of this where John has at least seen some of it. And there's a fantastic quote to drop it all on us.
1: Beneath the trees were all the wildlings in the world, raiders and giants, wargs and skin changers, mountain men, salt sea sailors, ice river cannibals, cave dwellers with dyed faces, dog chariots from the frozen shore, hornfoot men with their souls like boiled leather, all the queer wild folk Mance had gathered to break the wall.
0: It's a bit intimidating, but John gives a great speech. Knowing they're seeing all this, too, laid out before them, as he does, he probably is thinking the same bit about perspective and realizing that, wow, this is intimidating to me. It must be even more even more so to them. A lot of them aren't even meant to be warriors, etc. It's the same truth. The reason you can see them all is because we're so high on top of this wall, and that's also why we're so safe. When it comes to the first attack, there's mammoths and giants at the gate, and everyone else is kind of just standing there. They're shooting arrows Well, they're, sh- they're not just standing there, but they're doing nothing useful. Shooting arrows up 700 feet away. I mean, we're we're told that only one arrow hits anyone, and it's in Spare Boots' wooden leg. To be fair, someone is killed by an arrow in the next chapter, but it's extremely unlikely that you're going to get hit by an arrow that high up on the wall. John thinks about it thusly.
1: They must take the gate, or they cannot pass. But the gate was a crooked tunnel through the ice, smaller than any castle gate in the Seven Kingdoms, so narrow that rangers must lead their Garrens through single file.
0: I didn't include Mag the Mighty versus Donald Noy as one of the undercard fights prior to the Mountain versus the Viper. Maybe I should have, but we don't actually see it. It does have a few things in common, though, for sure. Like, both combatants dying. I mean, sure, the mountain is still walking around, but I wouldn't call him alive. Or at least if you want to call him alive, you have to also call him dead. (laughs) So he did probably die. The aftermath does tell quite a story, and it also very, very much fits the other recurring pattern with these one-on-one fights, or semi-one-on-one fights. Of course, Donald had people with him. The point is, though, big versus little is the recurring theme here.
1: Noi's sword was sunk deep in the giant's throat, halfway to the hilt. The armorer had always seemed like such a big man to John, but locked in the giant's massive arms, he looked almost like a child.
0: Be wary of metaphors like that. The giants fought the children of the forest. They were enemies. They were ancient enemies, and there's always trickery, Mm -hmm. lurking around the corner from George R. Martin when he makes these comparisons. We've talked a lot about how some of these battles have the feel of something much more ancient. They're calling to mind things like the breaking of the arm of Dorne and other examples. Here, a giant crushing a child. That's very evocative, especially given what we're going to see in the Sandor and Arya chapter coming up soon where there's Arya kills a small doll (laughs) <laughs> that's like a child. It's very, very familiar in its thematics. Also killed were two, two unnamed crossbowmen who were with Donnell. And, could, you, could you
1: call them red cloaks?
0: Uh, yeah, I guess they would be red cloaks. Hey, they're like mints. Red cloaks with black cloaks. Yeah, anyway. One named character here besides Donnell is Spotted Pate, who also is killed here. And he was the builder who helped make Longclaw's wolfhead pommel. That's a griz, a grisly way of showing us what giants are capable of. John himself thinks one giant. All this was the work of one giant. John earlier notes the free folk's lack of discipline and in general, the difference between the way they manage military matters. We've spoken before about the difference between men who lead from the front like Robert and Baratheon and Jamie Lannister and others who lead from the rear like Stannis Baratheon and Tywin Lannister. The free folk in general are more of the former than the latter as it takes strength to rise to the position of clan or clan leader in the first place. So it's fitting that Mag the Mighty, not truly the king of the giants, more of a—that's more of a more of a Westerosi title form. It's kind of like how they see Val as a wildling princess. It's not really a term that they would use, but he's—he is recognized as their greatest, as their biggest warrior, and so by he's sort of a de facto king of the giants, and he's the one to attempt to break the gate personally. And there's a reason I just called to mind Robert and Stannis. Remember this line:
1: "We all know what my brother would do. Robert would gallop up to the gates of Winterfell alone, break them with his warhammer, and ride through the rubble to slay Roose Bolton with his left hand and the bastard with his right."
0: Well, there's no Roose Bolton handy, but John is the bastard, I guess you could say. <laughs> so yeah, it's really quite fitting. He's got a hammer. He breaks the gate. He's trying to just kill everyone himself. It's, I mean, Stannis was being sarcastic when he talked about Robert and how people thought of him and how people exaggerated, but Mag the Mighty really almost did it. <laughs> I mean, he's a giant, so, you know, to be fair. Yeah, in the show, it was Gren who got killed here. Noy wasn't even a show character. Gren has not died in the books. Don't forget. Before his death, Donald gave John command to the forces atop the wall while he went to lead the defense of the gate. And no, John gives that great speech. Some of those words are meant as encouragement only because he recognizes they are in great need and we get some irony.
1: He might as well wish for another thousand men, maybe a dragon or three. A
0: bit of a nod. Stannis is going to show up with a little more than that very soon, maybe 1,500 men, maybe 1,200, something like that, around a 1,000, a little more. The dragon or three part, I imagine even some first-time readers were looked askance at that line. And... Even a first-time reader can imagine that, yeah, maybe Danny will one day come to the wall, and maybe she'll marry John or have a relationship with him. That, that's, that's first book stuff that you can, I mean, first read through stuff I think you can, you can perceive. That idea is still very, very possible. The idea that dragons could come to the wall to help defend it. Eh. Well, according to the world, to fire and blood, they won't cross the wall, but they can come to it, or something like that. So yeah, maybe John will get his Dragon or Three coming up there. A lot of people cited the line, give me light, he roared. They love this line from Donald Noy, and I agree. It's a great line. I'd forgotten that we get a callback to the Battle of the Blackwater when Septed Celidor begins singing the same song Sansa sings to the assembled woman of the court in this queen's ballroom. And But this time, Donald Noy cuts him off. And, well, it's appropriate because, yeah, whoever stays the arrows is going to have me to deal with. Also, though, it's, this isn't some song-worthy battle of two great kings. This isn't a fight for a throne. This is a down-in-the-mud scrum where with blood and snow and death, it's, not, it's gross and, and tragic, and there's nothing glorious about it. Interesting connection between Davos 6 in this chapter. Davos prays only to the mother to save his son before smuggling Edric away, and Septon Selidor sings the mother's hymn as the battle beneath the wall begins. Good catches there by Nina and Joe, respectively. Now, here's another one. Here's another quote. This one from our friend, that great tragic figure, Eamon Targaryen.
1: You, you must lead. No. Yes, John. It need not be for long, only until such time as the garrison returns. Donald chose you and Korn Halfhand before him. Lord Commander Mormont made you his steward. You are a son of Winterfell, a nephew of Benjamin Stark. It must be you or no one. The wall is yours, Jon Snow.
0: You or no one? So Arya could be. No. I'm just <laughs> <laughs> what an ending, as Joe put, puts it. What a chapter. Aemon reviews everything that has made John who he is now. And it's quite a list. You can't really argue with Aemon there. It's like, yep, <laughs> you, you make a good point, Aemon, and there's no one else. It must be you or no, and it's true. And when Eamon speaks, everyone listens. Hmm. So, a recurring theme for John in this chapter two is is kind of summed up in this quote here.
1: I'm wounded, and I stand accused of des- of desertion. His mouth had gone bone dry. I, he managed.
0: He barely has a leg to stand on in any of these situations, whether they're arguments or battles, anything, just because of this wound. <laughs> he's he's got to do what he's got to do, and he can barely get through it. John's given the same choice in this chapter that Davos gives Stannis at the end of the last. There is no one else who can command at the wall save Jon Snow, and there is no king who will head to face this peril at the wall, at least right now, only Stannis. You're the only one that might even go when Davos is, is making that argument. Man, He's not even sure that, that Stannis will go. If either of them refuses, it means not just to of the Night's Watch, but the defense of the realm as a whole. It means that the wildlings break through, and if they break the gate, that might mean that the others can then get through later. I mean, it, there's there's a additional potential fallout, collateral damage from, from this. Scott Wartman says, I had a dream that the king had come. Owen said happily, Maester Aemon sent a raven and King Robert came with all his strength. I dreamed I saw his golden banners. Yeah, we, this is Owen the oaf. I wonder, I, I think he might be prophetic or he might just be, he may have just dreamed the truth or dreamed what he wanted to see. Uh, of course, it wasn't Robert who came, it was Stannis, but it's the same thing, the golden banners. Who can say? I mean, dreams on the wall, the wall's a hinge of the world. Maybe people who are just very have a very the barest of psychic or energy or whatever. I don't know what term to use for this form of magic.
1: Yeah, I mean, we don't even know anything about Owen the Ulf, the oaf in particular. You know,
0: like yeah, other than from.
1: Him- we know he's blonde.
0: Yeah, exactly. So he's probably
1: yeah, we- not from up north, but you don't know his blood. You know, people intermarry. He could have northern blood. He could somehow have a drop of Targaryen blood. Like, it's at all possible.
0: Yeah, that's true. When you're
1: like lower, it's a good uh, low born, sort of like your bloodline's been carefully kept track of.
0: Yeah, very good point. There's no idea where he came from. You never know whatsoever. There could be some, he could have some sort of recessive gene, for lack of a better word, in, in George's genetic system. But yeah, it's a good catch and uh, remain an open mystery. I don't know if Owen is still alive. I think he is. He was
1: at Alice Carstark's and Sigorn's wedding.
0: Oh, then he's almost certainly yeah. still alive. Yeah, I don't think much death has happened since then except for John's <laughs> and uh, Patrick of <laughs> King's Mountain. <laughs> Here's another ominous quote. It felt like walking down the gullet of an ice dragon when he's walking down the tunnel towards the, uh, to find out what happened to Donald.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting that back-to-back we get a reference to a frozen dragon and then an ice dragon.
0: Yeah, the Davos, you're referring to the Davos coin. Yeah, and when it, they yeah.
1: say the, the stone tail of, of, you know, a frozen
0: dragon. Yeah, isn't that cool? I don't yeah. know exactly what to make of it, but it's unmistakably connected um, thematically. I mean, it's, like you said, it's back-to-back chapters. I really doubt that's some... I mean, to be fair, George. John
1: himself, John himself is the ice dragon. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I <laughs> wrote in the notes, is that John shock- yeah, talking yeah, to exactly. himself?
1: <laughs> that is him. So and Davos is gonna go have a bunch of interactions with him. So
0: Yeah. yeah. Given we saw a lot of Lord of the Rings references in the minds of referring to the minds of Moria, especially when in Bran's Nightfort chapter, I wonder if this is a bit of a homage to also, down in the Mines of Moria, where Gandalf's famous bridge scene, uh, holding off the Balrog while well, he says, you can't, shall not pass. The quote here is, and so long as we hold the gate, they cannot pass. They cannot pass. Mm, yeah, that could be. That could be. And I really just, in closing for this chapter, I just adore the name Spare Boot as a name. <laughs> <nickname>. <laughs> I do hope Spare Boot gets more scenes and lines. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. All right, let's go on. Aria 12, the one with Sandor the Builder, aka Wolf Dreams of Cat. <laughs> I could not get this title right. At the end of last episode, I said the title wrong, and then I mistakenly copied and pasted that same wrong title to the front of this document, and well, that's how you that's how mistakes get carried forward. But I very much prefer the name Sandor the Builder for this chapter, and I will explain why. But first,
1: she could feel the hole inside her every morning when she woke.
0: Better than a hole in the head, I suppose, which is where some first-time readers would have been left wondering. But of course, nobody here was worried about Arya dying after the Red Wedding. Not this time through, anyway. <laughs> 14 chapters later, and we're still getting reactions to the Red Wedding. It's, it's kind of like the comet, an event so big and so prominent that everyone reacts to it. Everyone has a take. And Arias is more personal than almost all the others, for obvious reasons. She's had such a painful, harrowing journey with so much bad luck, some good luck too, but the bad luck very prominently at the end of these journeys when she's so close to home or getting to some new location that should be better for her, and it just goes all horribly. Like her sister, she's been in the clutches of people who place a value on her Not because of a value of human life or they value her in particular. It's just the claim versus the value of a noble girl, which is very similar. And Sansa and Arya have both had very few people to bond with, but they've both shared trauma with the Hound. And he's no stranger to that himself. But early in this chapter, the dream world is more appealing to Arya than the waking one.
1: That was the best part, the dreaming. She dreamed of wolves most every night. A great pack of wolves with her at the head. She was bigger than any of them. Stronger, swifter, faster. She could outrun horses and outfight lions. When she bared her teeth, even men would run from her. Her belly was never empty long, and her fur kept her warm, even when the wind was blowing cold. And her brothers and sisters were with her, many and more of them fierce and terrible and hers. They would never leave her. But if her nights were full of wolves, her days belong to the dog.
0: The subtext there is really strong. Not only does she feel safe and empowered, but that last bit, her brothers and sisters were with her, many and more of them, fierce and terrible and hers, and they would never leave her. That is Echoing what is probably getting Arya most right now, why she has this hole inside her is that she's so very lonely and isolated. And, well, that's part of why she starts to look a little more kindly on Sandor, as opposed to the Hound. This is the first chapter where Arya starts thinking of him as, as Sandor, or in this case, the you know metaphorically, she called him the dog there. But really, she's not calling him the Hound or by his full name anymore. She's been thinking about killing him and running away, but she doesn't. She's humanizing him more. And that's very, very interesting and compelling. Arya notices he's paying less and less attention to her, though. And that's part of why she starts thinking of running away and of killing him. There's more reasons, not just her loneliness, that she doesn't run off and that she's humanizing him more. It's that, where's she gonna go? He's taking her to places that she would probably go anyway. He was. She thought about running off earlier, but then she's like, well, he's taking me to the twins and that's kind of where I want to go anyway. Same deal here. He wants to ransom her. And, you know, maybe he doesn't necessarily, or she doesn't necessarily respect him for doing that, but it's better than pretty much any other option she has, right? Going to Aunt Lysa? Well, what other choice does she have? So... Eventually, she's going to go to Bravos, but she hasn't had that idea yet or that option presented to her. She hasn't, you know, stumbled on some docks or any ships or anything like that. But this idea of Aunt Lysa dies pretty soon, too, because they realize they could never get to the Erie. So then it becomes River Run again. <laughs> like, again? Something Aria feels like she's been trying to do for years. And then the good dreams cease to be so good when she loses hope that her mother is alive. Arya has a very distinct wolf dream in this chapter that's tied to her mother. It seems to be partly her own willpower. The the, lo- the the comfort she was getting from having wolf dreams encourages her to try to get back there. And we see a little evidence that she's learning how to control it. Just a little. It's nothing like Bran because Bran has a teacher and is maybe more powerful. But it's following in similar footsteps, a similar path with some different circumstances. Here is. A very heart-rending quote.
1: Rise, she thought. <laughs> rise and eat and run with us.
0: Yes, this is her dead mother that she's pulled out of the water. And uh, we know that's the, the brotherhood without banners. Uh, not only is this heart rending, it's stone heart rending. Now, she's not going to run or eat, but she will rise. She will indeed rise. It's also quite horrible. Before that part of the quote, we have this.
1: Dead men clogged the shallows, some still moving as the water pushed them. Others washed up on the banks. Her brothers and sisters swarmed around them, tearing at the rich, ripe flesh. The crows were there too, screaming at the wolves and filling the air with feathers.
0: There's another one that reminds me potentially of what's to come. You've got a wolf pack eating the dead. Now, I don't mean that they'll be eating corpses later, just bodies lying around. I mean, fighting the walking dead is an entirely decent possibility for the future of the series. I am a big believer that there will be a lot more wolf action in the books than there was in the show. And I think that the vast majority of you would agree with me on that point. So Nymeria and her pack run away from the brother without banners as they see them approaching. Whereupon Beric asks Thoros to bring Catelyn back. He refuses Beric does it himself instead. Arya awakens and knows what she's seen is real. Joe Buckley suggests, tough as it is to see Arya in this moment, I'm. He's incredibly focused on Sandor. This thing about your mother, he starts to say, and Arya says, "Never mind. You know, I saw her in a dream. I know she's dead." What was he gonna say? Was he gonna actually try and comfort her? It's interesting because they are. This is a chapter where they just they certainly more than any of the others, start to bond a little bit. And it seemed like he was going to say something particularly comforting. Maybe one of the more nicer, maybe one of the nicest things he was ever going to say, but he didn't actually get it out. Arya preferring direwolf dreams to reality also reminds us of Bran after his fall, right? He was in the crypts preferring to be in his dreamscape. Now, it comes from a similar place. And I don't mean skin-changing ability. I mean being powerless and helpless, and alone. But Arya is not hiding in a crypt. She's out there in the real world. She's, she can't keep hiding in dreams because she's got to keep traveling and moving and keeping herself safe. Sandor himself is a lot like the broken men we've talked so often about, but with some very distinct differences. Even though he's stolen from helpless people, he's got a lot of enemies, he's being hunted, he's not welcome anywhere. He can't hide because he's too distinct. But he hasn't gone like full killer. He hasn't gone feral. He hasn't gone full broken man. He has some little scrap of decency, some honor left in him, some principles still, some of his old principles. And Arya's presence is probably helping with that. There's a little bit of humanity in him that's being kept alive by her being there as well. And vice versa, quite frankly. Triggle points out that this is a display of how similar the two are. Yes, they're very different in so many ways, but they're also so similar, especially at this point in their lives. And here's a quote that from earlier in the chapter that kind of highlights this.
1: She was too empty to talk and the hound was too angry. She could feel the fury in him. She could see it on his face, the way his mouth would tighten and twist the looks he gave her.
0: It seems like he's struggling with a lot of what's happened in his recent past and, and his more distant past. And maybe he's starting to come to terms with some of it because he does admit at the end of the chapter, the only thing he's afraid of is fire, which maybe isn't something he would have said before, even though it was kind of obvious. So you, you kind of wonder what's been going on in his internal monologue throughout all this time. Now, speaking of similar, when Arya and Sandor encounter the dying man of House Piper, Arya wants to know if they'll bury him. Catelyn also wanted to bury the men who died on the high road, and Ned famously buried the Tower of Joy's fallen in Cairns. This family and their insistence on burials. Again, you Starks are supposed to be about burning bodies. The Dying Archer is the second recent anecdote, including House Piper. We heard of their surrender when Jamie returned to King's Landing. They were one of the first houses hit by Tywin's raids and hit some of the hardest. It's also, by the way, another take on the Red Wedding, all this, because... but it's rare because it's one coming from a common soldier. Almost everything else we've seen, even though we've tried to imagine what it was like for the commoners, we haven't really gotten them to speak on it. Joe says, like the Blackwater in A Clash of Kings, there's a real sense of this being a ripple event that has destroyed the lives of thousands and thousands of people and then cast them adrift in the world, kind of in the same way Arya has been, just lost and alone and not sure what to do. But in this case, we get an actual account of the horror of betrayal. What bothers this Dying Piper man, most not that it isn't even his death. It seems it's that he 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 was struck by someone who was supposedly on his side, someone who was even pretending to be a friend. They they did all these things that friends do together, drinking, toasting. He never even got a chance to fight. He didn't know he was supposed to. It was just like so many other characters, so many other helpless people. He was just along for the ride, had no almost no agency whatsoever. Never had a chance to step in and defend himself when, when his fate came. And of course, the end of this man, they put, him, they put him out of his misery. They give him mercy, which of course has to make us think of what's coming for Arya with her calling herself mercy and going to the faceless men and learning how to kill.
1: The hound eased his dagger into a man's chest almost tenderly, the weight of his body driving the point through his surcoat, ringmail. And the quilting beneath, as he slid the blade back out and wiped it on the dead man, he looked at Arya. That's where the heart is, girl. That's how you kill a man.
0: And right, this is evidence of what I was saying: that if Sandor didn't care about Arya, if she, if he only purely saw her as a way to get some money from a ransom, he's not going to be having conversations with her, teaching her things. You don't educate people like that if you don't have any sort of sense of their humanity. And this is the second time Arya's been connected with water and giving the gift of mercy. Remember, when she met Sandor, well, met him again, they were going to throw him in a crow cage and deprive him of water. And prior to that moment, there were other men imprisoned in crow cages deprived of water that were given the gift of mercy. At the time that happened, we brought that up. So we're bringing it up again in pairing with this scene, which has got a lot of similar feels. Now, this whole chapter is also about Arya being no one, just like this Piper man, this nameless Piper man is adrift and aimless and and helpless. Arya has no family to go to for the most part. You know, she believes they're all dead. Sandor refuses to take her to Jon because the wall's so far away, which is kind of ironic because that may be where Sandor ends up eventually anyway. (laughs) <laughs> same, same ditto Arya, if not a little farther south at Winterfell. She doesn't know Lysa or Brendan very well. I mean, she's willing to go there, but she's not excited about it. She thinks of Acorn Hall and Lady Smallwood, but she doesn't think she could ever find them. She realizes that the Brotherhood's really not that different from Sandor and that they both just wanted a ransom. That's what the Brotherhood was going to do, just sell her. So why should she try to go back to them? She doesn't think of herself as Arya anymore, or Weasel, or Nan, or Ari or Squab, or the Hound's daughter, she's no one. And she calls herself that, and it's the first time. That's a couple of y'all caught that. Good job if you did. First time, she calls herself no one. Like this Piper man, who Sandor believes had to have had a horse for him to get so far away, he rides his horse until he can't, collapses, and begins the process of dying alone. That is exactly what happens to Sandor Clegane. He, except for he doesn't actually die. (laughs) He rides off after that battle at the end of the crossroads, which is Arya's next chapter, and then he's bleeding profusely and eventually can't take it anymore, falls off of his horse, and Ari leaves him there without the gift of mercy. In the close of the chapter, we come to what is essentially a massive inverse of the Duncan Egg Tales. We got a huge, powerful guy closely linked to knighthood, but in the opposite way. He's an anti-knight for Sandor, but... For Dunk, he's not, also not a knight, probably, but really wants to be. We've got a highborn child hiding who she is with hair cutting being part of it, And where the previous pair basically went around solving problems. Ari and Sandor are just trying to find a job and some food, which does happen to Dunkin' Egg a few times, too. This chapter gives us a little bit of an update on Tyrion's Vale clansmen, and it's not a happy one. Gunthor, son of Gur, Well, unless you're a big fan of the clansmen. But Gunthor, son of Gurm, and other named men are like the Burn Men and others there with like Timit. They have steel and armor and they're using it to plunder and rape and steal women and and take wealth and food. And well, to them, it's payback for the Andals pushing them back into the mountains thousands of years ago. But no, but this isn't good. (laughs) It isn't a good thing. And it's kind of a harsh example of, Tyrion wiggled his way out of the veil by making this promise. And this is the fallout of that. I mean, he kept his end of the bargain, and lots of innocent people are getting killed because of, well, I don't know that I blame Tyrion. I mean, he was trying to save his own life and he he did it in ways that other people couldn't have. On the other hand, this is clearly wrong. This is clearly bad. It's, it's, anyway, the scene in this chapter that, I've rethought the most is where they're at the village, helping build a palisade. is followed around by a child, and this is very loaded with the similar kind of ancient Westerosi symbolism that we've been taking note of a lot in these later Storm of, of Swords chapters. Think back to the time of Brandon the Builder, who was said to have used giants to help build the wall. When the wall was built, what happened to those giants? Were they allowed to stay? On the protected side, did the Giants really live south of the wall in concert with humanity? Maybe. I mean, they might have. Some of them did. I mean, 1-1's doing that right now, sort of, although that didn't really go that well. So maybe not. Maybe they the Giants got the same treatment Sandor got. So that's what I think of. I think of what happened to those Giants that worked with Brandon the Builder when I think of this scene and this quote.
1: But when the work was done and the tall wooden palisade was finished, the village elder made it plain that there was no place for them. Come winter, we will be hard-pressed to feed our own.
0: Yeah. So the giants were just excluded. They were like, thanks for the help. Get the hell out. And that's entirely possibly what happened. And that is what happened. Whether it happened with Brandon the Builder, that's certainly what happens societally in the long run. The giants were certainly forced to the north if not then, then later. And that's the only giants left are certainly north of the Wall. A darker possibility comes in Sansa's final chapter when she tears apart Robert Aaron's doll and Littlefinger jokes that giant heads on the walls of Winterfell used to be a real thing. Sansa says that it was just a story, but I don't know about that. I could see that being real. I could see a few giants' heads adorning the walls of Winterfell. Certainly giant skulls are out there. Rattleshort wears one it's not so strange and when i think of a child with a toy knight or soldier or the equivalent i think of the others because of that line that their child's snow knights which is coming pretty soon actually in sam chapter it's a reference that the children created the others the others are their version of knights something to fight back against mankind's version of knights the real kind of knights or you know the unstoppable and endless encroachment of humanity over the centuries before Hmm, yes. So this could be very much a parallel to that, where the little girl is perhaps a parallel to the children of the forest, and Arya is playing the role of the northerner slaying the other by killing the doll. Or we can look at it as the giant, which is what Littlefinger looks at it as. It works both ways. It works a number of ways. But there's other things to think about with this girl's doll and throwing him in a brook. Besides the comparison to Robert Aaron, uh, who Sansa tears that doll up, and so both sisters are tearing up a doll, kind of close together, and they both mock the doll afterwards. And it's kind of it's kind of unfortunate because you don't want to lose your temper with a child, destroy their toy, even if it's Robert Aaron. You don't. No one's going to feel proud of that afterwards. But they were both pushed pretty far. Maybe Arya less so, <laughs> but still, she's in a bad state of mind right now. Now, Sansa also sticks the doll's head on a stick, which is part of why Littlefinger says that, but it's really, <laughs> it's like, whoa, Sansa. <laughs> Each Stark sister's kind of mimicking the mutilation of the parent she saw, though, right? Catelyn's body was thrown in the river. Ned's head was put on a spike. So it's, the laughter stops when that point comes up, right? It's, it's kind of funny how both Sansa and Arya do this to a doll, but then you realize that it's so similar to watching their own family die, it's like, okay, that's not funny anymore. It's quite traumatic. And it's quite real. But it's also very subtle. I mean, it's really, really easy to miss that connection. What is done to the bodies afterwards? Especially because this is just a, these are dolls. I mean, it's really easy to be like, oh, these are just dolls. It's, the metaphor isn't necessarily going to land if you don't think about it. Speaking of metaphors... Arya thinks about the horses, Stranger and Craven, and it's like a, both Joe and Nina agree this is very much her kind of beating herself up and, and projecting herself as Craven because she ran away. She thinks Stranger would have fought Craven, blah blah blah. You know, she can't love a horse that's a coward. She can't love a coward, but she does also think of, you know, she thinks of some good traits the horse has. But mostly, she's just beating herself up for for running from her running away and not trying to save her mother which is so sad because Ari could not have done a darn thing whatsoever. But it's very much a sign of just how strong she is that she can't even comfort herself with the overwhelming logic of of how impossible it would have been for her to do anything about it. She still says to Sandor, what, are you afraid of going there and trying to rescue my mother? And he's like, that's got nothing to do with it. It's just impossible. So we're going to learn more about the the Brotherhood and Catelyn and Stoneheart when we get back to that, especially when we see Merit's chapter. some more on that later. But as far as the flapping cloaks, some people were curious about that. Black and yellow and pink wings, those are cloaks. The black is Beric Dondarrion, the yellow is Lem, and the pink is Thoros. Remember, his red priest vestments have turned pink, as the Ghost of High Heart pointed out. Interesting, too, that for this uh, chapter with Arya and Sandor, they have heard about the Red Wedding. They have not yet heard about the Purple Wedding. I believe that comes in the next chapter when they run into the Hounds, uh, run into Gregor's men. Good catch by Stefan B from our Flick Chat here. The village elder doesn't mistake Arya for a boy. Everyone mistakes Arya for a boy, and her hair has still been cut not that long ago. It's only been a couple, of, you know, a couple of weeks at most. Her hair can't be really that long yet. He does mistake her for Sandor's daughter, but that's a lot more <laughs> a lot more excusable. So that's kind of neat. This this village elder not only knows who Sandor is, he recognizes him and knows his reputation, but he doesn't make the mistake everybody else makes about identifying Arya. Okay, moving on, Tyrion 9. The gang reignites the rivalry. AKA, the one where Tyrion can't find witnesses. The same shameful line said by Tywin in Jamie's last chapter starts us off here today. This time, it's coming from Kevin.
1: Tyrion, said Kevin Lannister wearily, if you are indeed innocent of Joffrey's death, you should have no difficulty proving it at trial.
0: This is a line that sticks out to most anyone here who reads it because we're... I think nearly all of us, if not all of us, come from a place of proving guilt, not proving innocence. How is he going to prove that he didn't kill someone? You need to, they should be proving that he did kill Joffrey. Unfortunately, that's not how this works. And, but also it's worse than that. Kevin says it wearily, like, come on, man. We know there's honesty and bribery and bias and false testimony in play. It's not surprising on Tyrion's side that he's wary of being offered the wall even though he quite enjoyed his time up there. He got on with Gior pretty well and John. And, well, this is what Cersei and Joffrey promised, you know, apparently promised Ned Stark, and that didn't work out. The system, it's another example of the system breaking down. Basic trust, things like that, are not in play anymore. People don't trust each other the way they used to. The, moti- the motivation behind this offer is interesting, too. Joe suggests maybe it's just that Tywin wants to avoid the Kinslayer curse kind of, Avoid this embarrassment for his family. Probably the latter, though. He, he doesn't, the Kinslayer curse thing, he doesn't want people talking about that. I mean, he's not going to embrace it, but he mo- probably doesn't really care about it too much. The strength of the family, though, Tyrion being removed and executing each other, having the royal family, one member of the royal family, execute another is just not a great look. It's better to have one of them banished. That's less bad. It's still not good, but it's less bad. Nina suggests when Kevin and Oberyn say Cersei is demanding Tyrion's head, it's important to keep in mind what is in Cersei's head. Yeah, it's, all, it's definitely biased. It's definitely not a, a good example of justice. But still, we have to keep in mind where Cersei's head is at, which is on the Valonqar. If she honestly believes Tyrion's the Valonqar, then she thinks she can stop the prophecy from coming true. More so than anyone, she wants him to die. She doesn't want him to go to the wall. <laughs> she's she's kind of not probably in agreement with Tywin on that, though I doubt they've really discussed it. Kevin tells Tyrion he'll help him find witnesses where wh- whoever he names, but he also, like I said, hinted at the beginning he kind of just thinks Tyrion's guilty, and this is where I kind of go, yeah, I I don't I'm not a huge Kevin fan. I think Kevin's a little overrated, but. I don't blame him for thinking Tyrion's guilty here. In the eyes of Tywin, Tyrion has clearly shown his lack of loyalty to House Lannister, and Kevin takes his cues from from Tywin. He's not doing the things you would think he would do. Like, he's not showing the kind of family devotion that Kevin shows. Kevin's very devoted to the family, more so to Tywin than anyone, but he sees Tywin as the family champion. So it kind of makes sense. But from Kevin's perspective, Tyrion's refusing to impregnate Sansa, refusing to help L- the Lannister regime extend north. He's argued with Joffrey, threatening him, hit him. He used the threat of against Tommen. It was a threat, only a threat against Tommen to manipulate Cersei. But still, that looked bad to the to inside the family when he said, you know, if you whatever you do to Arya, I'll do to Tommen. Which, as we said at the time, it was an empty threat, but. It, it comes off looking real bad to Tywin and to Kevin, by extension, let alone Cersei. Tyrion's Stark wife was regularly and publicly abused by Joffrey, giving him extra motivation to kill his nephew. So it looks bad in that sense, too. But perhaps worst of all, the poison theft. The thing that Pycelle brings up in trial is, hey, he stole my poisons. And he did steal Pycelle's poisons. That looks really bad. <laughs> you stole the poisons and then the king is poisoned. I mean, oof. we know it's not true, but boy, that looks bad. So again, put yourself in Kevin's place. You'd probably think Tyrion was guilty too. Now here's where the chapter proceeds. We get Bronn coming in and Bronn brings up that he's going to marry Lolis, so that he's been bribed far better than Tyrion could bribe him. And Tyrion makes a half-hearted attempt to argue Bron out of this, saying, "Look, this gift isn't as good as it seems." Blah blah blah. "Quote:
1: The lands will still pass to his wife when Lady Tanda dies,
0: unless Felice should die before her mother." T- Tyrion then thinks, "Oh boy, I wonder if Cersei knows what kind of snake she's gotten in bed with in terms of Bron here." And well, probably not. But mm, Tyrion, you're one to talk. You had him in your employ this whole time. Now Bron is effective, no doubt. I'm not criticizing Kyrian too much here, but it is a little kind of a funny thought for, <laughs> for him to realize this. This is always how Bronn has been. And indeed, Bronn, as we've pointed out, does proceed here. Felice does die before her mother. And, but that's really Cersei's fault. <laughs> Cersei sends Felice down to Kyburn. Yeah, because she screwed things up and Cersei wanted to cover it up, et cetera, et cetera. The actual trial comes. One of the things that's super annoying to me about this trial... Tywin, there's a bunch of things that Tywin could have jumped in to correct someone on. But the only thing he really jumps in to correct someone on is when Oberyn says, why didn't you cut Tyrion's hand off? When when someone strikes the blood royal, that's the penalty. And the Kingsguard says, well, he's part of the royal family too, and to hand. And Tywin says, acting hand. Like, that doesn't make a difference. It's the same point. You still don't just cut the hand off the acting hand on a because he hit the king because you're a king's guard. If it was just some random guy, then sure. But this is a Lannister and Tywin. You are the one who appointed Tyrion acting hand. So, what's this king's guard supposed to do? Cut your appointed hand's hand off just because he struck Joffrey? I don't think so. So, that really annoys me. <laughs> and it's just one of the many things that Tyrion would probably be very annoyed by too, but he's got, there's much more annoying things for Tyrion going on there, like Osmond Kettleblack saying, Joffrey knew Tyrion would murder him. Guard me well, because, you know, my uncle wishes me harm or whatever. And we know that's nonsense because Joffrey never spoke like that. Guard me well, Sir Osmond. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> that's not how Joff talks. But it is kind of funny as a nod to the original plotting of the series where the Jamie was going to murder his way to the throne and blame Tyrion for it. So this trial, a lot of what's happening in this trial might have been part of the original plan, but it was pivoted away from Jamie's scheming into Littlefinger and Olenna instead, or the Tyrells in general. So maybe a little bit of not foreshadowing, but remnants of the original plot left in here. That's kind of neat. But the biggest whopper is almost certainly Tana Merriweather, who is an agent of the Tyrells as we learn in Feast. She flat out says she sees Tyrion drop poison at something into the cup, which is obviously a lie. Tyrion did, did no such thing. But since she's a Tyrell agent, it fits in with the whole plan of pinning it on someone else and protecting the ones who really did it. Because it was probably Garland who dropped the poison in there. And so Tana's covering for him. Even if she doesn't know who did it, Tana doesn't have to be fully in on the plot. For the Tyrells to have asked her to do something like this. They could have said, hey, Tana, say you saw Tyrion do this. That doesn't mean she has to know that Garland put the poison in, or that Mace did this, or that, or that Marjorie knew. Tana doesn't have to be fully in on it to play this satellite role. But it's also possible she knows a lot more. So there's just all this prejudice against Tyrion. It is so bad, so unlike what a court of law should function like. So much bias already in play that if there was a jury selection, it would be incredibly hard to find an untainted jury. But they do such a good job of making Tyrion look like a vicious monster who's always wanted to kill Joffrey and always hated him. And Joffrey widely isn't known how bad he was, right? He was 13. His atrocities were mostly behind closed doors. Given time, people would have known, would have learned how bad Joffrey was, but it never happened. Instead, according to Kevin, there's an angry mob outside waiting to tear Tyrion's head off because they think he killed the king. Maybe Kevin's exaggerating, but it's yet another example of just how much Tyrion's up against here and how the truth just does not matter. There's just, because there's no way to get to it. Speaking of poisoning, poisoning Lannisters now, we get Oberyn coming on and talking all kinds of things about poison and he brings up the 100 Scorpions anecdote when the Tyrells were appointed to rule Dorne. Well, much has been made of this scene as well and what Oberyn is really saying. Perhaps he's saying that we don't recognize Lannister authority over Dorne just as they didn't recognize Tyrell authority over Dorne. And this is a related concept given that the Tyrells are now part of the royal family. So it is part of their authority in play specifically. Also, however, Oberyn reveals he's been included in Cersei's efforts for the trial, meaning that she tried to bribe him, but he's like, no way would I ever want to marry her. It's funny, we talked about how dangerous it would be for Cersei to marry Oberyn because of all his machinations and, and desire for revenge. But here he's like, I would never marry her. She is dangerous. I would be a horrible idea. Even the brave, bloodthirsty red viper would be like, no, I, no, thank you. <laughs> I do not want that. But a very easy point to miss is how much else he might have learned about Cersei and what she's doing. Because think of the, well, consider the implication. He's just spent time with Ala Yaya. He tells her, He tells Tyrion he spent time with her and how exquisite she is, and he points out her scars. Did he ask her about those scars? If he did, he would know what Cersei and the Kettleblacks did to her and how unfair it was. And anything that she knows, any secrets she might have, I imagine Oberyn could get out of her because, hey, he's like, I'm coming for those Lannisters, so if you can help me get them, spill your secrets, girl. I'll I'll get them for you. And Oberyn, he's a convincing, handsome guy. I can Just imagine. A, a all second, yaya. there
1: for the idea of Oberyn talking, like, "spill your secrets, girl."
0: That's <laughs> <laughs> not exactly how he talks, is it? So, I mean, that's a great place to look for dirt on Cersei. Someone who has been very much harmed by her. Also, the point Oberyn is making, like that, like Braun, Cersei has made a certain offer, and well. Obviously, Oberyn doesn't accept the offer. I'm amazed by how close Tyrion gets so often. He's thinking of all the things. He's trying to come up with a move here. He's like, what is my angle? There's got to be some move I can make. He doesn't think of Oberyn in the right light here. He's thinking, oh man, I could get the Tyrells and the Martells against each other. They don't like each other. Hmm, let me get that. Let me, let me see if I could work that angle. And, and Oberyn almost tries to spell it out and Tyrion still doesn't really fully get it. Quote,
1: your father, said Prince Oberyn, may not live forever. Something about the way he said it made the hairs on the back of Tyrion's neck bristle.
0: Yeah, a lot of people wonder, was Oberyn going to poison Tywin? I think it's entirely possible. It's certainly we know he has the motivation, the means, the willingness Literally everything. The only question is whether he actually, whether he did it or started to do it. Something we'll talk about more when we have Tywin's corpse to deal with, which is part of where the evidence comes from. Two major points here, I think. One is the notion that Oberyn may have been working on poisoning Tywin. Two, though, it's just the motivation to do so. That's more important here because that's ultimately what ends up mattering in this scene. Oberyn's motivation is to get the Lannisters. Tyrion's, this is what I meant about him being so close. He's like, hmm, I could get the Tyrells and the Martells at each other's throats. What he's missing is how much Oberyn wants to get the Lannisters. That's who he wants far more than the Tyrells, is his family. Tyrion's reflexive loyalty to his family in this scene is really interesting. We pointed it out ahead of time that he still carried his duty to his father, despite his father abandoning him throughout this trial process he still lied to Oberyn about Tywin's complicity in the murder of his family. And he wouldn't throw Sansa under the bus either. It was a a nice little small bit of Tyrion's sense of duty here. But it goes to show that that same reflexive defense of his father is probably why he couldn't get over the hump in realizing what's really going on here in terms of what his options are. If he had thought of asking the Red Viper to be his champion before he would have seized on that idea and realized, whoa, actually, that might work. It never occurs to him, though. Part of this is artistic license. George wants to have this amazing final moment of the chapter where we're like, oh, holy crap. We're we're supposed to be in the same fog as Tyrion, not realizing what's actually kind of straightforward when it's spelled out, that Oberyn wants to kill the mountain, and Oberyn wants to kill Tywin or at least ruin his reputation or bring him down. And this is a golden, golden opportunity. It's really amazing, actually. Oberyn notes Tywin won't save him. This is true in more ways than one. He can't buy Braun off, right? He couldn't buy Braun because it's the, it's the same thing Brown Ben Plum says. Braun Ben Plum. <laughs> what good is gold when you're dead? It's this very straightforward argument. No amount of gold we'll get a man to face the mountain. There's not enough money worth it because you won't get to spend it. <laughs> it's, a, it's fool's gold. Now, arguably, he never could have gotten Bronn to fight for him because there's just no way he could have gotten Bronn to fight the mountain. But there's also, arguably, he never paid Bronn enough in the first place. This all comes back around to Tywin and how Tyrion and Tywin have a lot in common. Just as Tywin cannot buy off the Martells for what he had the mountain do, he can offer council seats Marriages, more power, money, castles, none of that is ever going to erase what they did to Elia and her kids. Nothing will make Oberin set that aside. Nothing. Neither the mountain's wrath nor the mountain's guilt will be put aside by gifts, not a chance. So Tyrion, so very powerless in most imaginable ways. Yet the very thing that Tywin cannot buy off, Oberyn's desire for revenge, is the one thing Tyrion does have unique access to. In this moment, Tyrion and Arya have so much in common. He has nothing and no one and nowhere to go except the path of someone else's revenge. The Faceless Men are an organization born amidst the cruelties of old Valyria as an answer, as a justified response to an enduring evil. Her iron coin is the one thing of value she has and to most people, it's worthless. Most places in the world, that iron coin is nothing. She doesn't know how valuable it is. To her, this is like a black piece of iron. But when she shows it to a Bravosi captain, her fortunes change. She's off overseas. That thing of little value elsewhere has enormous value in the right place. To so that one Bravosi captain, if she had showed it to a captain from another city, it wouldn't have meant anything. Just like had... Cersei named a, cha- a champion other than the mountain. Oberyn wouldn't care. He's like, I don't care about fighting for Tyrion. I don't get a chance to fight the mountain. That's, it's, it's amazing. It, an invitation to fight the mountain is m- worse than worthless. To nearly everyone on the planet, it, it's like, no, I, why would I want that? But to Oberyn Martell, somehow it's absolutely priceless. And when you have something that is deemed priceless to a prince, well, that thing is quite valuable as it turns out. Oberyn wants to kill the mountain as badly as Tyrion wants to live. And Tyrion just did not put that together till Oberyn just put it right in his face. It's an incredible inversion of perspective. On the issue of the mountain and justice for Elia, just as Tywin's immense wealth and power is inverted into something worthless, Tyrion's predicament, a toxic asset that money and favors cannot rid him of, is somehow in the most valuable trade ship possible. That's <laughs> so, so amazing. Also, too, I just got to say, balancing Kevin and Tyrion, looking at Kevin's unflinching loyalty to his family, but look at how well Kevin's been treated. I mean, if Tywin treated Tyrion the way he treats Kevin, if they had worked together really well, and we talked about this, it could have happened. Kevin was in grief because of What happened to his family and and Tywin had to rely less on him and Tyrion filled some of that void didn't go that well. But if if it had, you'd see some of that same Kevin-esque relationship. It might have, you know, it might have helped them develop a real relationship. Obviously, that didn't happen. The point is, though, if that kind of loyalty had been shown Tyrion, if Tywin had invested in effort into into building that bridge between him and Tyrion, then he might have had himself another Kevin. He might have had someone like this. Instead, what he's got is the opposite. Someone who's ready when presented with the option to turn on his family because has his correctly realized how much his family has not supported him and is willing to turn on him. If he's a Kevin figure, he might even say, look, I realize how bad this looks. I'm willing to take one for the family. I look like a murderer. I don't want to make this black mark on our family any bigger than it has to be. So yes, I will go to the wall, even though I'm not guilty. I'll take one for the team. But the way Tyrion's been raised, the way Tyrion's been treated as an outcast within his own family, no chance is he going to fall on his sword for them after the way he's been treated. No chance. And you can't blame him for that. Backing up a little bit, let's talk about some other angles here. Very important to note that Varus is offered 100 gold dragons for the turn of Sansa. And later, Sir Shadrach, the Mad Mouse, will explicitly tell Brienne in A Feast for Crows that he's hunting Sansa because the eunuch has offered a plump bag of gold for her. And in The Winds of Winter, Shadrach is going to tell Elaine, of course, maybe not realizing or maybe tongue in cheek su- suspecting who she is, that, quote, a good melee is all a hedge knight can hope for unless he stumbles on a bag of dragons. And that's not likely, is it? I got to say, though, that's kind of a. Low, low ransom? A hundred gold? I mean, that's less than the ransom for Brienne that the uh, Vargo Hote turned down. So, yeah, I don't know about that. It's interesting. I wonder if there's Varis is intentionally keeping it low because he doesn't want her to be found. Or I don't know. I just that's kind of seems a little off to me. Kevin tries so hard to. Get Tyrion to see why Tywin is good. He gives a stirring argument about Tywin being misunderstood. Some of it's a little bit fair. I mean, if we're being honest, yeah, it's true that Tywin had to deal with the Mad King and that's that's a hard job. I mean, ruling as hand of the king to that guy couldn't have been easy. It was very difficult. But there's still so much hypocrisy in here. Kevin says... Tywin seems a hard man to you, but he's no harder than he's had to be. That is just not true at all. He definitely did not have to do what he had to do to the Reigns and Tarbacks. He could have done that a lot more mildly. And Taisha, come on. Sacking King's Landing, come on. These are, he had to? Elia and her children, he had to? What he means he had to is he had to do that for the benefit of the family for the benefit of the Lannisters, for the benefit of Tywin Lannister. That's what had to means in this context. So it's not very honest, but it just goes to show how bought in Kevin is. Jaded Redhead says, guys, would Cersei accept support Marcella as queen? Yeah, that's a good question. I didn't bring that one up. Oberyn mentions it. He mentions the possibility of crowning Marcella, which of course leads us is a groundwork for Arianne Martell's plot clearly, but Tyrion wonders that too. He's like, would Cersei, what would Cersei do if Marcella was crowned? She certainly wouldn't want to have her children fighting against each other. On the other hand, she's always resented being excluded from power and ha- women being excluded from power. It might have been a conundrum for her.
1: Yeah, I liked uh, the discussion that was here, which is uh, like Justin DL ninety seven said. Well, if it was a Dornish plot, then no, she might not have been down just on that principle.
0: That's true. But
1: then Newt Rock 44 pointed out that maybe Cersei could then make a case for employing Dornish law to suit her own needs as per Casterly
0: Rock. You could see her maybe going that route if the war went a certain way. Yeah. You know? Hmm. But as far as when it breaks out and who to back, yeah, that's a real trick for her. I'm not sure. Oberyn raises the point about is it treason to say a man is mortal? Valor Morgulis was how they said it in Valyria of old. All men must die, and the doom came and proved it true. Surprisingly, we never alert from Jockin what Valor Morgulis actually meant. It, this is, but you know, not directly. You can piece it together. Yet we've heard this phrase before. The first time was actually M- Mance Raider in John's opening chapter of this book. <laughs> and he was singing the song. The Dornishman's Wife, which at the time we pointed out would be coming back around, and here we go. Brilliant Connection by George. A Dornishman being sung of in the far, far north. Now we get this translation so much later. It's also mentioned in Danny in 3 this, in this book, but, but again, the translation of Valor Margulis isn't clear at that point. And igrit also says, All men must die. Um, maybe because she heard Mance singing it. Uh, one point about Tywin that's important is how he's trying so hard to get the Martells and Tyrells to accept this new regime, and he's giving up and conceding so many little things here and there. In in this case, he names them both judges. A couple of strange angles about this. For one, he's giving... Another thing, it's against Tyrion. It, it looks really bad for Tyrion because he knows Mace is going to be anti-Tyrion well, Marjorie. <laughs> Mar- Mace keeps going on and on about how Marjorie was put in danger by this. Ty- Oberyn points that out how this is a big deal to Mace. Now, of course, we know better that this is part of Mace almost certainly just blustering to try to help their case and to try to help their plan, which is to pin this on Tyrion, which is what they've always wanted to do. They, of course, are probably one of the bits of subtext here is that they're frustrated because they've almost certainly tried to steal Sansa for themselves. That was part of pinning it on Tyrion to free her up and marry. Littlefinger stole her away, though, and because of that, the reactions are much differently. Now they're like, oh, yeah, Sansa's in on it. If Sansa hadn't fled, they, wouldn't, they would be trying to carve out some innocence for her so they could take her. But since she ran off, it's the opposite. They're trying to ruin her claim since they can't have it. Tywin may think that he's giving Mace and Oberyn power over his family by naming them judges, saying, look, I'm sharing power, even with my own family, who I'm always so protective of. But this is Tyrion, who he's thrown to the wolves proverbially many times, and just by, again, by naming Mace one of the judges, he's doing that. Let alone Oberyn Martell. He names the two judges who are known for being hostile to to Tyrion for different reasons, or at least to Lannisters. So, yeah, it's so stacked against him. A great take by Joe here. The blank list of Tyrion's witnesses, which is a really effective way of showing Tyrion's long descent since Clash. When he was hand, when he was acting in, he may not have had friends per se, but he had power. He had people serving him, gaining favor, just bringing him things to to get rewards, etc. Give stuff to the man in power. He'll give stuff back. But he's not that anymore. And now, this is what he's thinking. This is how far he's fallen. He doesn't have friends. He doesn't have allies. And this is what he's thinking of himself. They will call me Kinslayer till the end of my days for a thousand years or more if I am remembered at all. It will be as the monstrous dwarf who poisoned his young nephew at his wedding feast. And is, that a, is there a better way to relate Tyrion to Jaime? Out being outsider who is thought of as a slayer slash Kingslayer. Very similar principle. And well, Jamie had to make that decision once long ago as well. Another funny thing that with regards to Tyrion being so close, I, to- I talk about how he refuses to blame Sansa or, or throw her under the bus at all about the poison, even though he thinks she probably is guilty because he can't think of who else did it. He's like, who else could have brought the poison? Who else could have done it? It's Again, he's so close. <laughs> yeah, she did bring it, but she didn't bring it wittingly. And her, disappear, disappearment, disappearment? her disappearance is also a clue because he's thinking, how could she have pulled this off? How could she have gotten the poison herself? Yeah, you're so close, Tyrion. She had help. She obviously had help. She did not do it on her own. <laughs> but he doesn't consider who the most likely people are. He doesn't think a little finger at all. And he doesn't think of the Tyrells. He does not think of how much they have to gain. He doesn't think of, oh, this is what Braun was saying about it sure would be easier if it was the other one, meaning Tommen in charge instead of Joffrey. It's come up several times. And this is interesting because th- this is, well, Tyrion's lost some of his cleverness here. He's, and that's partly because he's anxious, depressed, lonely, sad, traumatized, et cetera. It's hard to be clever with all that weighing on you. He was in a loveless marriage. He's, you know, an alcoholic, probably. There's just, you can see why he's not at his best anymore. Why his former skill set has fallen off a bit. And that is exactly what Varus and Illyrio are going to tell him when they're trying to recruit him. And it's not going well at first when he's just self-destructive and drinking himself to death. They're like, look, man, if you just want to drink yourself to death. Why waste time? Here's some poisonous mushrooms. So they're trying to snap him out of it back to this clever self that he used to be. The, the clever version of Clash of Kings-Tyrion Ty- is what Illyrio and Varys want. They don't want this Storm of Swords version of Tyrion. He's not that useful to them. Good under-the-radar take from Bronn here. He says about the mountain, he says, he doesn't seem to feel blows the way a normal man would. This is because the mountain drinks milk with a poppy all the time because he has crippling migraine headaches. So yeah, that's why he doesn't feel blows in everyone would because he's doped up <laughs> on painkillers like 24-7. Tyrion says, I don't recall meeting any regicides at Castle Black. <laughs> Give it time, my friend. They're going to be stabbing a certain Jon Snow, King Jon Snow, very soon. There'll be all kinds of regicides at Castle Black. Here's another comedic line. Assuming Joffrey had not simply choked to death on a bit of food, which even Tyrion found hard to swallow. <laughs> okay. And then Cersei... Now, again, put, uh, put yourself in mind that Cersei is still thinking about the Valencar here and very paranoid about what Tyrion's capable of. But she says the most ridiculous thing here when Tyrion says, I'm sorry, everybody. I was angered by his lies. And she goes, His truths, you mean? <laughs> Father... I beg you to put him in fetters for your own protection. <laughs> like this is a court of law where Tyrion is, you know, not a very intimidating physical presence, and there's just Kingsguard and Oberyn Martell and just lots of people. And Cersei's like, "Put him in fetters for your own protection." <laughs> like what? <laughs> She's obviously just saying that just to get one over on Tyrion. Like, ah, put you in chains, blah blah blah. All right. Um interestingly, Jamie's lack of presence at the trial, I guess he was kind of in the corner watching maybe not sure. But we'll address that next because the next chapter is Jamie 8. Storytime the White Book aka Lord Commander Kingslayer takes charge. Joe Buckley points out how this really could have been Jamie watching his brother at trial. That's kind of maybe what you would think when you see a Jamie chapter right after Tyrion's trial and you know Jamie's back in King's Landing. You would think it would maybe have more directly direct involvement with all that. Instead, well, we get a chapter full of themes and duty and loyalty and trying to turn things around, and they discuss the murder. It's just not as direct as one might have guessed. This is a really good chapter, though. I'm certainly not complaining. While Jamie is trying to turn things around, he is blind to so many of the obstacles preventing that. Not just the elements undermining the investigation into Josh's death, not even the fact that he's trying to catch elite intriguers Olena and Littlefinger who have covered their tracks expertly, but that even the best influences of his life were deeply flawed. This is part of Jamie's great tragedy, I think. He's trying to be a better person, which of course is a good thing. I'm not trying to gloss over that or forget it. But he's here trying to be a better Kingsguard knight. Remember what I said at the beginning. The Kingsguard are only as good as the king himself. You don't get a pass on propping up a cruel tyrant's regime just because you made a promise. You can take promises very, very seriously, and I do, but still have the grace to face the reality that you can't see the future. You should not break promises because it's convenient. You should always try to uphold a promise. But a promise is not an excuse to permit or support evil either. It's not a, oh, well, what can I do? I made a promise. In a story so very focused on showing the gray in everyone, the utter whiteness of this chapter rings completely false, and I think it's meant to. A
1: white book sat on a white table in a white room.
0: With black curtains. (laughs) Oh, sorry. Couldn't help myself.
1: (laughs) The room was round, its walls of whitewashed stone hung with white woolen tapestries. It formed the first floor of White Sword Tower, a slender structure of four stories built into an angle of the castle wall overlooking the bay.
0: Yeah, so much white, 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 white. By focusing on being the best Kingsguard he can be, Jamie is making an earnest attempt, which is a lot of good there, but he's also missing the best part of his youth. And not, not his sword hand. The decision to stand against Ares was commendable. And he tells himself this early on. He's stubborn about it. And it's one of the few things he's right about from his former life and being, you know, I, I did the right thing kind of, kind of attitude. He laments that he's judged for his greatest act, and I don't blame him for that lament. It is not fair that he is that he stopped an inferno, saving many innocent lives, and is thought of as a bad person. There's no universe in which I will think his promise to always obey the king is more important than what he did by breaking his promise. There's I would there's no argument that would get me to accept that Jamie did wrong there. Maybe there's things he could have done a little differently, but overall, going against the king when he's trying to burn everybody, A+. plus. <laughs> it's sad to me that he thinks how he's nothing compared to Arthur Dayne or and Selmy, how they were better men than him. But none of them stood up to Ares. They went along with all his cruelties. They watched him burn people. They watched him descend into madness. They watched him treat people unfairly. They did all that, and they didn't do anything about it. I'm not saying they should have. I'm just saying it's sad that Jamie thinks he's worse than them when they would not have done this most brave thing that he did. It's not unlikely that all six of them would have just let Ares blow up the city had they been there instead of him. They would have just died beside the Mad King, just gone down with the ship. And he doesn't make this connection. Jamie still uh, asserts that he did the right thing, but doesn't apply that to this type of thinking where he balances it against duty to something evil. These cultural values just weigh so heavily on him. It's all, there's only so much you can stand out in a crowd and go your own route when everyone around you, your whole life is calling you Kingslayer and saying you did wrong. He's holding on to that he did right, but it's very hard to hold on to that. But we know that it was a good deed, killing that mad king. It makes me mad as East thinking about it, I tell you. Quote.
1: And me, that boy I was, when did he die, I wonder? When I donned the white cloak, when I opened Ares's throat, that boy had wanted to be Sir Arthur Dane, but someplace along the way he had become the smiling knight instead.
0: And this is what I'm talking about: how the whiteness is such a lie. Jamie thinks is that when I died is because that's when he started lying. Is that when he became false? He wasn't false before he put that cloak on. He was honest about his falseness. (laughs) He was. Just an arrogant knight who was great at fighting that wanted to be with his sister. And that's pretty much all he ever wanted to be. And then he became a Kingsguard and, and other things. And then that all fell apart due to understandable cynicism. Jamie, when it comes to Tyrion, Jamie goes with duty to his brother over other duties too. He still does have that part of him, you see. So I'm lamenting that Jamie is, is, is trying to do right, but also forgetting some of the best parts of himself. But he does still have some of this in him. Just imagine the current Jamie with the Kingsguard of Ares' time, meaning Jamie in charge of it. That'd be a great thing because those were great Kingsguard, those were great knights that, that could be led well. You can't reform this Kingsguard very well, though. I mean, some men will be led to good if you lead them and evil to evil. If you lead them, they will just follow their duty, so to speak. But Kettleblack, Boros Blunt, Trant, the guy currently getting seduced into crowning Mercella down in Dorn? These are not good examples of men who even if you lead them well will behave well. It was Kettleblack dude? No thanks. Trant, come on, he beats women. Boros Blunt didn't even do his duty as a Kinks guard and then was given the white cloak back. Talk about a guy who spoils it for everyone else. People say that about Jamie, but I think it's men like Boros Blunt who do more harm to the the reputation of the King's Guard than than Jamie. Yeah, I mean that's a debatable point, but still he's bad. None of these men deserve to wear white in the sense of what white is supposed to stand for. It's supposed to mean moral purity and devotion, and you're not colored by other thoughts and loyalties. But it's all a lie, isn't it? Jamie has other loyalties. Boros Blunt. Is falls prey to his own cowardice, I suppose. More Maren Trant and Osmond Kettleblack are just not decent people to begin with. Aries uh, Ocard is up against a seducer that's just way more than he can handle. He's just not capable. The one who might be special, Sir Loris, the one who's like Jamie the most, might be in on the purple wedding. And if not, and I kind of lean that he wasn't, I can believe he was in the dark. Then he's the only decent guy besides Balon, Swan, and Jamie, And Jamie can't fight. So he doesn't have a lot to work with in terms of reforming the Kingsguard. Bit of irony here too. Jaime, like Tyrion, so close but so far. <laughs> he almost figures it out. He's on the right track, yet not.
1: There were five of you at the wedding feast, Jamie pointed out. How could Joffrey die? Unless you were part of it? Sir Loras drew himself up stiffly.
0: There was nothing we could have done. Jamie isn't really accusing him. That's why I mean he's so close but so far because this is just—he's only making a point. What happens is Loras says, "How could Brienne not have been involved in Renly's murder? He was. She was right there when it happened." And Jamie's like, "Well, you were right there when this murder happened. <laughs> How could you have had nothing to do with it?" So he's sadly, Jamie is using a good example logically to show why Brienne might not be guilty. But Loris, even if he's not guilty, his family certainly is. So <laughs> there's nothing you could have done. I don't know about that. So speaking of the investigation, that's where we're turning now. And, and speaking of things being doomed right away, meaning the, the King's Guard may not be reformable, at least in its current state. Meaning, speaking of not having much to work with, this isn't the best start for Jamie here. But this is this, at least in this context, I'm about to drop, it's kind of funny. Rarely do all seven Kingsguard meet because they're supposed to be guarding the king at all times, right? What are they going to do? Have the king hang out in their meeting with them? That's not gonna play. And so here they do all meet. Well, six of them because Aris Oakheart is in adorned, guarding Marcella. But as an aside, I guess they should have sent Loris Tyrell to to Dorn instead of Aries O'Cart if they wanted to avoid seduction. But hey, Loras wasn't actually in the Kingsguard by that point, and they never considered Ariane Martel's seductive capacity when, they, when making these plans in the first place, because they probably have no idea. Anyway, the funny point I was getting to is that while the Kingsguard are meeting to discuss who killed the king, who do they have guard the king? Well, let's check out the quote. Who guards the king? My brothers, Sir Osney and Sir Osfried.
1: Sir Osmond replied.
0: And my brother, Sir Garland.
1: Said the Knight of Flowers.
0: So, the Tyrells and Littlefinger conspired to kill Joffrey, and what we have here is the new king guarded by agents of Littlefinger Plus, Garland Tyrell, the man we think most likely to have put the poison in the chalice. So, <laughs> Jamie immediately calls an emergency meeting of the King's Guard and assigns the people who killed the last King to guard the new King. Whoops. <laughs> yeah. Which brings us to the rest of the discussion surrounding who killed Joffrey, because that, of course, is what Jamie is very much making a priority. He, he, he's, he's, Balen Swan admits that everyone was watching the, the king cut the pie. No one was watching the cup. They, it's mentioned that both on the dais were both families, so they maybe should be suspected, but Jamie doesn't go there. He does not suspect either his own family or the Tyrells. And how can he? He's got Loras Tyrell sitting right there making pretty convincing arguments about Sansa. And Jamie wants to believe this because if Sansa's is guilty, it means Tyrion's innocent. And Jamie is having a hard time accepting Tyrion's guilt, even though it's hard to get around the all the evidence that looks so bad. So it's really hard to just start off for Jamie thinking: let's consider the Tyrells as possible threats and possible conspirators here, with Laura sitting right there. Was Loras gonna help? Is he going to, at best, Loris is going to be like, well, I can't stand for this to go against my family. And Jamie's going to argue, hey, man, you're a Kingsguard. You're not a Tyrell. This is your duty. I don't know what way Loris would go there. If Loris would be all about his duty, well, that argues that the Tyrells would not have included him in the plotting in the first place. On the other hand, it's like Tana Merriweather. He doesn't have to be fully involved to be partly manipulated, right? They could tell him, it's got to be, they could all have a private family meeting or just having breakfast together and Mace Tyrell just says the same thing he's been repeating at trial. It's, it has to be Sansa. She's the one that wanted to kill Marjorie. Loras could easily seize on that, whether on his own or just because his family's saying it, and it sounds right to him. A really good read that Joe has here on the different reactions of the different Kingsguard when presented with this. Dalon's uncomfortable. Balon Swan's a decent guy. He knows his words were twisted against him to frame Tyrion in a, in a negative light. Balon got up there and said good things about Tyrion. He said, "I can't believe Tyrion did this." And yay, Balon! But right here, this is—he's unhappy because his testimony was was abused and twisted. Boros, and of course, he has a little bit of standard Kingsguard shame that you're supposed to feel when a king's guard, when the king dies. it's Their duty wasn't done. Loras is like, we couldn't have done anything. But Balon doesn't see it that way. He's like, we can always have done more. There's always more we could have done. That's his attitude. And that's part of why Balon is probably the best of the bunch. Moving on, Boros is angry because Tyrion makes him angry. And (laughs) Tyrion being called out and all that. Boros is just mad. And Boros doesn't like Jaime and... Uh, He also knows that he lied and he's having to defend his own lies makes him unhappy. Osman shrugs because he just doesn't care. I mean, it doesn't matter to him. It's just, to him, it's a joke. He says, Septon did it. That's your poisoner. He's really, really not taking it seriously. So it's not surprising either when Marin and Boros also, or rather when Marin also tells lies and just the same lies he told at trial, just repeats what he was kind of coached into saying and just goes along with it. There's no... There's no stepping outside. There's no, this duty goes beyond what I was told. He's really just a, being a puppet. And that's just all speaks to how difficult, if not impossible, this is for Jamie. How could Jamie get to the bottom of this? I just don't see how he, how he could ever get to the bottom of this without someone telling him, which is what happens in the show. <laughs> he finally does get told straight up. That might be what happens. So he interviews each man in turn after the trial bit. He He wants to talk to them about their... Kingsguard duties going forward. I love the little humor here. When Jamie names Boris Blunt to be food taster, he turns beet red with embarrassment. Double funny because Tommen hates beets. (laughs) He's the food taster turning beet red for a guy who has said he will ban beets by law (laughs) when he comes of age. Osmond Kettleblack, of course, is like, yeah, I was knighted by Robert... Uh." Stone. Yeah, that's his name, Robert Stone. Mm-hmm. And let's keep in mind that even though he's an agent of Littlefinger, Littlefinger's about to say in a chapter coming next week that Kettleblack Black has been harder to control since he joined the King's Guard. Marin Trant gets the look, don't beat people just because the King orders you to. Don't kill his horse because he tells you to. He's like, what, disobey the King? Jamie's like, no, don't disobey the King, so to speak. Just we have to save the king from himself. That's part of guarding him. And Jamie knows that well because, well, Arius was constantly doing things that put himself in danger or that would get people to want to get him. And we come back to Loras. Loras, like Jamie, they have a lot in common. This is a, there's a big point made here about that. And It's not hard to see their similarities. And they both have some things that get them to become serious. Loris, like Jamie, as a, as a younger man, didn't take much—didn't take a whole lot of things seriously. He's very arrogant, a cocky. But when it comes to Renly, Loris gets real serious and real, you know, down to earth, but also very romantic in, in a sense, <laughs> but just very humble about it. And that's that's how Jamie describes it. Like all the all the you know humility came out when, when he started talking about Renly. And this is interesting because this is where Tyrion, this is where Jamie's soft spot is also for his the person he loves, which is Cersei. Although he's starting to have problems with her, this is only just beginning. And you gotta think that, yeah, Jamie would also probably treat a lot of these family matters with the kind of seriousness that, that Loris is treating it, even though most other things he would not take very seriously. Also, as more evidence for Garland Tyrell being the poisoner. Loris admits it was Garland wearing Renly's armor. And I think this is perhaps a reflection on who Garland really is. Renly was not as good a guy as people think a lot in a lot of cases. Like he's a very much a politician who projected his best self, but behind closed doors, he would say kind of scummy things like his personality isn't as noble and charismatic and all friendly and, and warm to everyone and, He looks at everyone, looks down on people. Uh, He looks, even the smallest person he has a nice thing to say to, that's a public facing Renly. Private Renly, very different. Here's a quote.
1: The younger man started for the door, but there he turned back. Renly thought she was absurd. A woman dressed in man's mail, pretending to be a knight.
0: If he'd ever seen her in pink satin and mirage lace, he would not have complained.
1: I asked him why he kept her close if he thought her so grotesque. He said that all his other knights wanted things of him—castles, or honors, or riches—but all that Brienne wanted was to die for him.
0: Which makes her a fantastic Kingsguard, a fantastic now That is exactly what you want out of a Kingsguard. Maybe not willingness to die for him, maybe maybe a little more die defending him. But he's still, the same point. That's that's nitpicking, and of course. Maybe Renley was saying negative things about Brienne because Loris lost to her in the melee, and Loris thought, you know, she was used a dirty trick and all that. And maybe Renley, because it's his lover, was taking his side a bit. But still, this is not a good look for Renley. And Renley said other bad things behind closed doors, too, that we could point to. We don't need other examples, but coming back to this, my point is: if Renly was not really who he made himself out to be. Well, what does that say about Garland, who was overly polite to Tyrion when he needed to be, guy who's pretending to be Renly, if he's also pretending to, in the same way that Renly was pretending? That's really interesting. Is he a reflection of that same type of character? A guy who, in public, is very charming and unassuming and humble, but behind closed doors, he's not like that at all? Well, if Garland being like Renly, that could be a clue that, yeah, he's not really so gallant after all. Nina says Renly didn't think Brand was a knight, but rather an absurdity, a woman pretending to be a knight. She was useful to him as a human shield, so let her do that. She didn't respect, h- or he didn't respect her, he used her, taking advantage of her devotion to him. And that's a very big contrast to Stannis, who raised Davos genuinely on his merits and treated him with respect and with dignity and treated him honestly and fairly. Just very, very different. This is a major contrast for Jamie. Jamie started to see Brienne as the best version of a knight. So when he hears people disparaging Brienne, he start, it, it has to strike him as like, you guys don't really understand knighthood, do you? She gets knighthood better than any of you. And so this is a, a distancing between him and these other attitudes. He's going to take Brienne's side on almost all these things in his head. <laughs> and also there's these interesting exceptions, Renly and, and Ares, right? They have all these similarities in terms of what's different about them and who would die for them. And the fact that they both have these really exceptional Kingsguards that they probably didn't deserve. Joe Buckley's take here. We get some reading time as Jamie indulges in the book and George indulges in getting some history out of his system. Barristan stopping off to record his firing of the white book before he escaped from the city is the most hilariously embarrassing thing in the world. But the point of this is the long and varied description of Barrison compared to the stunted paragraph of Jamie's. It's weird enough seeing a life and career summed up in writing, which is part of what makes fire and blood so intriguing, by the way. But finding out the previous Lord Commanders didn't think enough of Jamie to record any of his extracurriculars is tough for him. He's like, wow, that's what they thought of me, huh? And he he understands it. He realizes it it's because his deeds, he doesn't have a lot of great deeds. I mean, they're not going to put Killing the King in there, even though that is a great deed. It's not something that you can put in the White Book based on their attitudes. Still, it really sums it up for him. It really drives the point home that if he wants to reform, if he wants to be seen differently, he's got a lot of work to do. Now, I can't really spend much time on the White Book itself. It's really big. We did an episode on the King's Guard before the World of Ice and Fire and before Fire and Blood. So if we were to go back and redo that episode, we would have, it would probably have to be two parts. There's just so much. So we, we certainly can't do two episodes worth of Kingsguard coverage in a few minutes here. But let's just say the White Book is awesome and I loved reading the stories about it and I, wish, I hope we get more. And I look forward to future entries being made in the White Book about people like Jamie and perhaps Brienne herself or who knows, who will make their way in there for whatever circumstances are yet to come. Or maybe the white book will just be burned not <laughs> will be nothing and I'll be really sad Nina points out this is the first mention of, of the in the main novels of Duncan the Tall by name fully although obviously the hedge knight already existed at this point um, so he would have been a historical figure a known historical figure prior to this book being written now assuming Dunk eventually learned how to read and write which is you know at least some of the pages of this book are in his hand so he had to have, uh, including at least the beginning of Gerald Hightower's entry. Well, that's a great example of an entry in the white book that we really want to see. <laughs> Can we please get the whole thing, George, please, please? Hmm. Both Joe and Nina are lean towards, Nina leans heavily towards Loris not being involved in the, in the plotting. I lean that way too. I think it's, it's very easy for him to tow the family line without knowing all the details. It's like I explained before, it's easy for him to blame Sansa because of the Marjorie thing. It's easy for, for him to take his family's side, even if he's not in on the plotting, because yeah, Marjorie was put at risk. All he's got to do is hear Mace's point about that and agree and be like, yeah, she, she tried to kill my sister because she was replacing the king or replacing the queen. Mostly, though, it comes down to him not needing to know, right? So you, you can do all this without him needing to know. That's, that kind of gets to the point there. Why include someone that you don't need to include? On the other hand, you could see why he would be. They're a family. Maybe they're pretty tight. Maybe they're all a, a working unit, but mm, he's seventeen. he's maybe takes his duty seriously. You could see how he would not be okay with being a king's guard assisting in the murder of a king. That might be too much for his sense of honor being a young guy with very black and white notions of what's right and wrong. so, You can see how he would be excluded or only partly included. Also, with relation to Balon Swan, Nina points out it's a good question as to where his brother Donald will serve next. He uh, served Stannis and Renly and then Bentonita Joffrey. However, well, it's the Swans. The Swans are a Stormlands house, one of the more important ones. What we could be seeing is... A nod to the fact that Donald Swan will who is the heir to their castle, to Stonehelm, that perhaps he will join Team Young Griff, Team Fagon, Team Aegon the Sixth. So he'll have switched kings a fourth time, I guess. <laughs> if Balon Swan is dead by then, he killed in Dorn or something, then well, that might make it all a little simpler. And there's a little bit of foreshadowing here, perhaps for young Griff and Daenerys, this quote that Jaime uh, thinks.
1: There had been times during its history where the Kingsguard had been divided against itself, most notably and bitterly during the Dance of the Dragons. Was that something he needed to fear as well?
0: Yes. The answer is yes, Jaime. That is something you need to fear. (laughs) Arrested Development Voice. He did, in fact, need to fear. And the Kingsguard may, in fact, be split by it. Very possible that Kingsguard will defect from Tommen to go fight for Aegon. And that won't even be a Dance of the Dragons, but it will be a similar enough thing, a civil war where the Kingsguard is divided. And if not that, then yeah, young Griff and danny that's also possible. Or why not both? Why not both? Hey. (laughs) Jaded Redhead says, you guys remember when Bush Sr., that's George Bush Sr., former president in the U.S., banned broccoli on Air Force One? I vaguely remember that. Yeah, that's really funny. That is like Tom and Banning Beats, isn't it? Except that this this actually happened. <laughs> the kettleblacks are so hard to keep track of. A lot of y'all noted, and how could you not, the coolness of the Wherewood table at the White Sword Tower, which, you Wait, know...
1: did you already... Did, did I miss you talking about the broccoli?
0: Yeah, I just did.
1: Okay, I just wanted to mention how I didn't know about this and yeah. I just really, really think this is hilarious. This yeah, senior before nice your time. It <laughs> happened. I googled it. I was like, really? Does this? Uh, did this actually happen? Yes. <laughs> yes, actually, did not allow it.
0: It was allowed on Air Force's two through five, <laughs> 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 the broccoli planes. So yeah, the weirwood table really cool. Obviously, it's it's white. The wood is white. It fits, you know, thematically that way. But it's another kind of a. In a sense, fits in with the lie of it all. Werewood has nothing to do with their devotion, has nothing to do with their beliefs. It's a Kingsguard are sort of an end-all faith of the seven-ish institution. So it's kind of like they're adopting these symbols that they don't really live up to or have anything to do with at all. They're not truly white. They're not truly, you know, Werewood associated. Eh. But it is really cool. A whole Werewood table. And people are wondering if that if it's sort of it can be a conduit, if there's any sort of dream power coming from it. We haven't seen any evidence of that. There's no nothing to really lead us in that direction. But it is possible. You know, There's a lot of werewood items out there that are carved and made into things that maybe doesn't have anything to do with the magical properties of werewoods. It's severed from the werewood network. But hey, it's possible that there's some echoes, some dream voices trapped inside the wood itself that Someone sensitive to such things could maybe hear it or feel it. I certainly can't say it's not true. Now, also in this chapter, our last little bit, some setting of the seeds for Jamie coming to help Tyrion, which is, he thinks to himself, now, how did Sansa escape? I'm going to have to talk to Varys about that. Again, they're just so close. Both, Sansa, both Tyrion and Jamie correctly think about Sansa because she is part of the evidence. It's just they need to go farther than that and think, she's 13. If she acted, she clearly didn't act alone. And it's, it's amazing to me that neither of them can really go much farther past that in thinking, well, who would have helped her? Who would have done this? If Sansa had help, who? They just, they don't know. Dantos? Like, they're, that doesn't tell them much, but he's Varanus too, so that's a bit of a clue, but Jamie hasn't had time to pursue all this yet. Still, that's going to be huge because when he goes to talk to Varus about how Sansa may have escaped, well, this is leading to him getting Varus to allow Tyrion to escape by sword point, or at sword point. And that does it. We are done with episode 14 of Valar Revitas and three more Valar Revitas episodes of A Storm of Swords left. I've been having fun getting a Feast for Crows ready. Last night I was working on our episode document spreadsheet where I do all the uh, scheduling, where I try to figure out what order to do, or not what order, how many chapters do each week. What I've fallen into the habit of doing, I didn't start this at first because we were just trying to bite off a certain number of chapters each week. Nowadays, I look more at the audiobook length try to do a certain number of minutes of the audiobook because that seems to be a better guideline than chapters because chapters vary so much in length. We've seen hour chapters that are more than an hour, and we've seen chapters as short as 10 minutes. So clearly the number of chapters can be a little misleading. Although to be fair, that's less true in A Feast for Crows where the chapter lengths are both longer, but also less variant. There are 25 chapters in A Storm of Swords that are shorter than the shortest chapter in *The Feast for Crows. <laughs> This, last week, we covered 162 minutes and 24 seconds of the audiobook. This week, 178 minutes and 18 seconds. We have gone through 2,346 minutes, 38 seconds of the 2,854, 27 seconds audio. What's funny is I had found a small error in the spreadsheet. I've been saying the wrong total for the audiobook length, but I was only off by like 45 seconds, so it's whatever. <laughs> I could have not said anything and probably people wouldn't have even noticed probably. You can always check the final edited podcast version of this to see how much was edited out of the video version. It's usually five to 10 minutes. Sometimes it's as much as 20, though. Well, we cut out things like pauses and ums and ahs and coughs and me saying so and mistakes like when I bumble my my words. This is half recording session, half hangout wait, live stream.
1: Are you going to keep in Light Fringer?
0: Light Fringer, yeah, I'll probably leave that. <laughs> Especially
1: funny. now that I've referenced it.
0: Yeah, Now, I, yeah. because now I'd have to cut this too, right? So, yeah. You made me keep it. <laughs> now, a lot of times my slips of the tongue are amusing enough to keep it because, eh, we're really not. But also, sometimes they're just hard to cut out. <laughs> Next week, like I said, we don't always have five chapters. We have four chapters, but only five minutes shorter. So it goes to show those are, these are going to be longer chapters, and they are Sansa 6... A wedding where no one dies, aka the one where Lysa loves Loudon. You could also say a dull wedding. <laughs> a wedding, yes, that's right. A, a non Dothraki wedding. A dull affair, yes. Good uh, idea, actually. <laughs> John
1: 9. The gang fights a turtle, <laughs> aka the one where Jano Slint arrests John. Where show are me the, the turtle! Show me the turtle. <laughs>
0: Tyrion 10, making Tyrion Lannister a murderer, aka the one with the mountain versus the viper. Yeah, the actual duel coming and next week.
1: And finally, Danny 6, a tale of two slaver cities, aka the one where Jorah is banished, which I love.
0: Bye bye, Jorah. Yeah, that's next week. It'll be Danny's last chapter of the book also. And we'll be saying goodbye to her until a Dance with Dragons. Ditto uh, some of these other characters that are going to be wrapping their arcs up and not be seen again for a while. But some of them we have quite a bit more of. Like I said, there are still many John chapters, several Sam chapters, and a lot of action at the wall. But we also have some more Sansa, some more Jamie, and some more Arya before the whole book is done. Until next time, thank you to Ashaya for being the best, for managing so many things at once, all at once, Thank you to Joe Buckley and Nina for their invaluable contributions to the content of this episode. Please check out the Scraps and Scrolls editions of Isle of Faces and Good Queen Alley on Tumblr. Thank you to the History of Westeros Mods who post every chapter with awesome art every week in our Facebook group, leading the discussion and getting people hyped for Valerie Reedus every Sunday. Also, you can join us on Flick, Slack, and Discord. As I said at the beginning, the links are in the episode descriptions. Thank you to Michael Klarfeld for our wonderful maps and the video intro we use on other episodes. Thank you to Kevin McLeod for the intro music for Valerie Revitas. Thank you to Joey Townsend and Jesse Kowal for our regular History of Westeros music intro and outro. Thanks to the Engineer for making every episode sound quality much greater than it could be. The editing is, is my business, but Ben does the sound work. And thank you very much to all of our patrons who keep us I do afloat. A bunch of
1: the sound work too.
0: That's true. You do a lot. Of, I already thanked you, but yeah, you know, yeah just, you're just right. point <laughs> that
1: out. That if there's something wrong with the sound, I deserve some of that blame. You're too. absolutely
0: right. Shea fixes the sound as it's being created. Ben and I handle the recorded yes. mistakes. And some
1: of the beforehand <laughs> That's stuff. true.
0: Ashaya makes it good in the first place. That's true. And ben, ben and Ashaya have worked together a lot to make the show better. So yes, Ashaya is right that that I deserve deserves, blame. She deserves deserve praise and, and blame. No, yes. just kidding. Only praise. Only praise. And also, yes, thank you to our many patrons who keep the show going, to keeping us afloat, to providing us with financial support at all times, enabling us to spend a full-time effort at History of Westeros. I could not thank you enough for that, but I will try. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We will see you all next week for more Valar Lewis.